The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Breaking an unbreakable code to save, at the very least, millions and millions of lives. To possibly stop Hitler from taking over the world. That was the unimaginably stressful task assigned to a select group of code breakers during World War II. A task where the stakes could not have possibly been any higher. And many thought accomplishing this task was quite literally impossible. The code-breaking all-stars were initially primarily composed of, and if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know it pains me to say this, primarily a group of Polish mathematicians. I know, right? And then later, British, French, and Americans all racing against the clock to deconstruct the most powerful encoding machine of their day, the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine allowed its operator to type in a message and then scramble it. Really, really scramble it. One three-rotor Enigma machine, the most common configuration, could encode a military message into over 15 quintillion different ways. That's a 15 followed by 18 zeros. And by the end of World War II, the Enigma machine would evolve into an eight-rotor machine, upgrading its possibilities into the septillions, over 400 septillion possibilities, 26 zeros, over 400 trillion trillions, an absurd number. The Enigma encryption to many felt completely unbreakable. First developed in Germany for commercial use, as Hitler was illegally beefing up his military during the Third Reich to fulfill his plans of world domination, the Enigma machine's military uses soon became a very important part of the German war machine. They would end up using it for all their important military communications, ambushes, bombing raids, U-boat attacks in the North Atlantic on allied supply lines, etc., etc., etc. The Enigma machine allowed for truly secret communications between Central Command and a variety of field commanders. As long as the Enigma machine's encryption remained indecipherable, the Germans could plan and execute strategies with little to no fear that the Allies would have any idea what they were up to, what they were about to do. Luckily, before the war began, a group of concerned academics, knowing what a terrible weapon this machine could be in the wrong hands, and hands don't really get any more wrong than Hitler's hands, 
They began trying to solve the puzzle of the enigma. Years previous to British and French codebreakers pitting their big brains against the Nazi seemingly unbreakable encoder, a team of Polish codebreakers, yes, actual Polish peopleish creatures who were truly really good at math, they were the ones who started breaking down the Enigma code. This group of mathematics students were led to believe that they were just taking a class on code breaking. And they were studying, studying for something far more important than a good grade. And they made significant headway in solving the mystery of the Enigma machine all the way back in the early 30s. And they were doing this back when the British and the French were still hoping to appease Hitler and not have to fight him. When the Polish codebreakers eventually shared their findings with British and French intelligence services, brilliant mathematicians like eccentric genius Alan Turing, it greatly accelerated the path to Allied victory. Some think these geniuses are actually who made this victory possible. The competition between German encryption devices and Allied codebreakers was an epic battle of brains, a race against time. While British, French, and Polish codebreakers worked to figure out German messages, German engineers worked just as hard to make sure the Enigma machine's uh, advanced models became more and more complicated. Who could work their big brains the fastest? If the codebreakers won, they would save anywhere from 14 to 21 million lives. And if they lost, the Nazis might win the war. Quite the motivation to give this project their all. This is our epic tale for today. A big, fascinating story that will include what happened to the heroic codebreakers after the Second World War and so much more on today's World War II, Nazi fighting, maybe some Polish monsters are actually somehow smart or smarter than the rest of us, edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday in Hail Nimrod, Meat Sacks. Lucifina is excited for today's tale. She loves a strong mathematical mind. Bojangles loves the story as well. He likes hearing about Nazis getting their asses kicked. Uh, Triple M does not care about today's suck. Awkward. He's a bit depressed, unfortunately. Try as he might, he can't keep forgetting that his 2020 Doobie Brothers tour has been canceled. He'll bounce back. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Polish provoker, Yamo Mushmouth, and you are listening to Time Suck. I was recorded this, uh, this episode was recorded on Friday, November 6th, uh, aware of the U.S. elections. I have my thoughts, and while it's not easy for me to do right now, I'm going to keep it to myself. Out of respect for most of you, come in here today, I'm guessing, for some nice historical escapism. So let's escape. Kind of hoping a few new listeners turned off this episode after my Polish comments at the beginning, thinking I'm a deranged hate monger. Uh, that thought amuses me greatly. I just keep picturing them uh, turning this off and thinking, who the fuck does this guy think he is? H how is this anti-Polish bigot not been destroyed by cancel culture yet? It's 2020. You can't shit on people like that anymore and not get in trouble. Uh, if you're a new listener and you're still listening and you are rightfully concerned slash confused, uh, my wife, Lindsay, is Polish. And I like to tease. Ha, I like to have some JKs. Uh, I like to tease her and her awesome family. Uh, <laughs> I always thought the Polish jokes were so ridiculous as a kid. And, you know, here we are. I tease because I love you Polish pseudo-humans, even the ginger ones whose ancestors have clearly offended God, uh, leading to them being cursed. But enough about monsters. Sweet, very sexy Lucifina challenge coin in the store right now at badmagicmerch.com. Hail Lucifina, bringing some extra heat to hell, bringing some sexy fishnet fire to the lost and the damned. Uh, feels right to have a challenge coin drop right before Veterans Day. 
Uh, happy Veterans Day. Big thank you to all of our military listeners and not just uh, U.S. military listeners. Thanks to all those who've served and our allies, armed forces as well. And in honor of Veterans Day, November 11th, also my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, Lindsay, queen of bad magic. Uh, we're making a Bad Magic Productions donation of $10,000 to the veteransfoodpantry.org. This money comes from the combination of the Time Suck and Scared to Death Patreons. Uh, thank you, Space Lizards. Thank you, Roberts and Annabelles. Alan and Linda Erickson founded the Northwest Montana Veterans Pantry and stand down over 20 years ago to serve the veteran community in the Flathead Valley and the Northwest region of Montana. They have since expanded their operations to include a variety of other veteran services. And we know about them because their son, Robbie, is a bandmate of our producer, Joe Paisley. Uh, they're both part of Moretta. And Robbie has helped our podcast in a variety of ways. He's a Cult of the Curious Facebook moderator. Uh, thank you, Robbie. Thank you, veterans. Uh, thank you, veteransfoodpantry.org. And there will be a link to veteransfoodpantry.org if you'd like to learn more. So happy to be able to give bigger and bigger donations. Uh, and now for a story of bravery, beautiful minds, tenacity, Polish people, uh, dedication to making sure that Hitler wasn't going to end up ruling the entire world. Let the Enigma Games begin! Uh, once we run through today's Time Suck timeline, we'll touch on some of uh, World War II's most important battles uh, that involved the men and women tasked with breaking the unbreakable Nazi Enigma Code. Going to explore some of the Allied forces' best and brightest and also some very smart Polish people. <laughs> uh, this episode might make it more absurd than ever to keep pushing anti-Pol propaganda. So frustrating that I have to cover even more obviously heroic and intelligent Polish people. I don't know what's worse, continuing to think that they're subhuman monsters that we should fear or accepting that they're good, talented fellow human beings, which will then make it harder to make derogatory jokes about them. Either option is terrible. They're either dumb monsters or they're smart fun killers. They will stop at nothing in our quest to destroy the, in their quest to destroy the suck. Why would it be my quest to destroy the? Hey, did I frame my propaganda right? I hope so. Also talking about the main hero of today's topic, uh, a not Polish man named Alan Turing. Uh, Turing's discoveries were some of the biggest technological advances of his time or of any time. Turing's inventions and discoveries were so advanced, he was literally ahead of the technology curve by several decades. And he he reminds me of someone, he reminds me of somebody I know. Uh, he reminds he reminds me of me, okay? Turing and I, we have the same brain, basically. <laughs> am I a mush mouth? Are you sure? Or am I a linguistic pioneer? Maybe my continual mispronunciations are not lazy mistakes. Maybe they're windows into the fucking future of language. You ever think about that? Maybe I have a mush mouth tongue that's tongue-tied ahead of its time. Or maybe I'm an absurd jackass who continually amuses himself with hyperbolic nonsense. <laughs> I don't know. Probably the last one. Hard to say for sure. It's a mystery. Uh, time to refocus on Turing now. I know, I know. Back in 1948, fellow genius Turing uh, wrote the first chess programs for computers back before there were no computers with the power to run them. So he just ran the uh, algorithms by hand. No big whoops. Just going to be his own computer. He also gave lectures on artificial intelligence more than 70 years ago, something we're still just beginning to learn about today. He's considered the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. Some call him the father of the computer. He's who the Turing test is named after, that test that determines whether or not a computer is capable of thinking like a human being. Turing proposed that a computer can be said to possess artificial intelligence if it can mimic human responses under specific conditions. The original Turing test requires three terminals each of which is physically separated from the other two. One terminal is operated by a computer while the other two are operated by humans. During the test, one of the humans functions as the questioner 
while the second human and computer function as the two respondents. The questioner interrogates the respondents within a specific subject area using a specified format and context. And after a preset length of time or number of questions, the questioner is then asked to decide which respondent was human and which was a computer. And this test is repeated many, many times. And if the questioner makes the correct determination in half of the test runs or less, the computer is considered to have artificial intelligence because the questioner regards it as just as human as the human responded. The questioner cannot tell the difference between the computer or the human. Love it. Good old-fashioned logic. How do you know when a computer has become sentient when you can't tell it's a computer? Uh, And the second a computer passes this test, I think we probably are going to have to destroy it and then destroy all the other computers and then burn all of our computer scientists alive, right? I mean, it's either that or Skynet. You get it, scientists. We either burn you alive or Sarah Connor and a Cyberdyne Systems Model 101 from the future have to hunt you down. If you're confused right now, well, please find time to watch the first two Terminator movies. Uh, They still hold up. Entertaining. Uh, Moving along. Uh, Before we learn more about Turing and other nerds in today's heady timeline, let's touch on who they were fighting. The Germans. Going to skim over both World War II and World War I now, since World War I sanctions helped create World War II. Then we'll go over in depth how the Enigma machine worked. Uh, It's fascinating. And we'll make sure we truly understand the importance of the Codebreaker's mission before we get into exactly how uh, their important mission was carried out. Uh, World War I, nicknamed the Great War, kicked off in 1914 after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria by a Serbian nationalist, uh, Gavrilo Princip. And during the conflict, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, the Central Powers, came in on the side of Austria-Hungary. They fought against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Japan, and the United States, the Allied powers who all came in on the side of Serbia. And where was Poland in all of this fighting? Uh, They were busy not existing. (laughs) That's right. Not as a recognized country, at least. How fucking convenient. No, they actually really didn't exist as a country uh, at the start of World War I. Uh, Polish territory was split between Austria-Hungary, the German Empire, and the Russian Empire. The United States actually remained on the sidelines of World War I for almost the first three years of the war, adopting the policy of neutrality until February of 1917. In the final year and a half of fighting, which ended on November 11th, 1918, uh, happy Veterans Day again, uh, America lost 53,402 soldiers to combat, another 63,114 to disease, thanks to the influenza epidemic of 1918, and approximately 320,000 additional troops were wounded or too ill to continue fighting. The majority of the fighting took place in Europe along two fronts, the Western Front and the Eastern Front. The Western Front was a long line of trenches that ran from the coast of Belgium to Switzerland. Uh, we talked about trench warfare in our World War, uh, World War I suck. Nasty business. Uh, the Eastern Front lay between Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Bulgaria on one side and Russia and Romania on the other. The armies of the Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, they would mobilize 25 million soldiers. Three and a half million of them would die. The Allies or Entente powers, France, Britain, Russia, Italy, Japan, the U.S. deployed 40 million soldiers, lost more than 5 million. So many lives. And the fighting ended on, as I mentioned, November 11th, 1918, when a general armistice was agreed to by both the Allies and Germany, or basically mostly mostly by the Allies. Uh, and Germany was just kind of forced to sign it on, on June 28th, 1919, heavily pressured to sign it. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles was signed The treaty was a peace agreement between Germany and the Allies, kind of. It was a peace agreement that would ironically lead to so much more death in the Second World War. 
The treaty codified peace terms between the victorious allies and Germany, and it motherfucked the Germans. The Treaty of Versailles held Germany entirely responsible for starting the war, which is not exactly true, but is mostly true. And they imposed incredibly harsh penalties on the Germans in terms of loss of territory, massive reparation payments, and demilitarization. And most historians seem to think that they went way overboard with their penalties and created a lot of backlash. The Treaty of Versailles humiliated Germany while failing to resolve the underlying issues that had led to war in the first place. Economic distress, resentment of the treaty within Germany helped fuel the ultra-nationalist sentiment that led to the rise of Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party. After becoming chancellor of Germany in 1933, Hitler said what a lot of scared and impoverished Germans wanted to hear. He gave them someone to blame for all of their problems, not the right people to blame, but a scapegoat, and they wanted a scapegoat, uh, a scapegoat a lot of struggling Germans were all too happy to have, and he swiftly consolidated power and declared himself Führer, or leader, in 1934. Obsessed with the idea of the superiority of the pure German race, which he called Aryan, Hitler believed that the war, or that war, was the only way to gain the necessary uh, Lebensraum, uh, or living space. And he felt that German, the German race needed to continue to expand and dominate. This uh, Lebensraum was Hitler's equivalent to America's manifest destiny, but even crazier. Uh, manifest destiny was a widely held American imperialist cultural belief in the 19th century that American settlers were destined to expand across North America. Load the rifles, boys! Totally okay to butcher American Indians. All part of God's plan. It's our destiny, our manifest destiny. American settlers actually believed they were destined by God to remake the world in their image. Maybe just a wee bit arrogant. Uh, do I live where I live now because of it? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, am I thankful I do? Yeah, I am. Does that justify the concept of manifest destiny and how it was uh, enacted as being ethical or moral? No, it does not. Uh, and the Germans would be even less moral and ethical with their manifest destiny equivalent. With Le Lebensraum, uh, Hitler believed in an even more insane notion conceptualized by a German geographer, Frederick Ratzel, at the end of the 19th century. And that was, in order to literally remain healthy, a species must continually expand the amount of space they occupy, for migration is a natural feature of all species, an expression of their need for living space. Birds need to fly south in the winter, and humans need to fuck up other humans. Become a, to become a stronger species, one must expand. This concept was one of the primary driving forces for Nazi expansion ambitions. Hitler loved it. When he came, he probably uh, yelled, Lebensraum! Uh, the Rotzel the character I'm talking about was directly influenced by the American Manifest Destiny ideology I just laid out and by earlier British and French colonization. Rotzel asserted that Germany required new colonies to relieve German overpopulation. He also believed in German racial superiority. And he felt it would be good for both the German people and the rest of Earth if more of the Earth was populated by kick-ass Germans and all of the Earth's other inferior races were subjugated by their kind of benevolent but not really uh, Aryan master monsters. And Russia was to be Germany's primary Lebensraum target. Hitler actually once decreed, uh, there's only one duty to Germanize this country, Russia, by the immigration of Germans and to look upon the natives as redskins. Eek! Uh, in the mid-1930s, Hitler, preparing for this incredibly delusional and misguided German expansion movement to claim more Aryan quote-unquote living space, secretly began a rearmament of Germany, huge violation of the terms of the Versailles Treaty. Germany had been forbidden to have an air force, but with the help of the Soviet Union, Germany secretly defied the treaty and trained pilots and support staff on combat planes in Russia. Guessing Hitler 
didn't talk to Stalin a lot about Lebensraum while the Soviet leader was helping him bring his military back up to snuff. This is fantastic, Stalin. Look at these fighter jets. They're so very fast and powerful. Do you think they might, I don't know, do you think they might totally annihilate the Russian air fighter things? I was wondering if all of this makes you nervous on any level. Asking, asking for a friend, of course. Uh, by the start of World War II, sneaky-ass Hitler and his tiny weasel stash uh, will have built a German air force known as the Luftwaffe into the strongest and best-trained air force in the world, enabling Germany to carry out highly effective invasions of their neighbors. In 1936, just after training pilots in Russia, Hitler forged alliances with Italy and Japan against the Soviet Union, the Anti-Comintern Pact, I totally tricked you, Stalin. You and your too big of a mustache. You just, you got Adolfed, you bone-headed Bolshevik. Uh, and then Hitler sent troops to occupy Austria. The following year, Germany annexed Czechoslovakia. Hitler's open aggression was, of course, concerning to the world at large, but also initially largely ignored. The United States and the Soviet Union were concentrated on internal politics at the time. The U.S. was busy trying to finish climbing out of the Great Depression. And the USSR was busy putting a lot of its people in gulags and turning neighbor against neighbor through fear and paranoia. Uh, both France and Britain were hesitant to return to war. Neither wanted to see a repeat of the carnage of World War I. The British Empire had almost a million soldiers either get killed or end up MIA in World War I. Over 1.3 million French soldiers had died in that war. But then in late, 18, uh, late August 1939, Hitler and Stalin would sign the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a.k.a. the Treaty of Non-Aggression Between Germany and the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republic's German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact, which allowed the two dictators and uh, their nations to, you know, work together. And everyone else got really nervous. And if you're thinking right now, what the fuck? Wait a minute. I thought Hitler had just entered a deal three years earlier against the Soviet Union. Why is he now making a deal with the Soviet Union? How is he able to get a deal with them? Great questions. The first deal was all about communism. It was about, hey, the USSR and China getting pretty friendly. Let's keep an eye on that. Let's just make sure they don't spread that nonsense. Hitler, not a fan of Bolshevism. So why would Hitler work out a deal with the Bolsheviks, with Mother Russia, not long after forming an alliance against them? Why would Russia allow this as well? Well, they both wanted Poland. That's why they decided to work together. This deal was really, truly all about fucking up Poland, uh, which I get. <laughs> Ah, sometimes after spending time with my wife's family. Yeah, I get it. I, I get it. JK, gosh dang. Uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, though, was less about non-aggression, more about dividing up Poland. A week after signing this pact, both Russia and Germany aggressively invaded Poland. Poor Poland. It had just regained independence from Russia, Prussia, and Austria at the conclusion of World War I, after 123 previous years of occupation. And then Russia was like, JK, motherfuckers! <laughs> get back over here, you rascals! Bend down, kiss that ring again. And then Germany's like, but not all of you. Uh-uh, 22 million of you Polish monsters, you now belong to us. The Lebensraum has begun. Don't tell Stalin, not yet. My, not yet, my pretties, not yet. This additional act of aggression set off a frenzy of worry in London and Paris. Great Britain and France had guaranteed military support to Poland if they were invaded by Germany. And they were both like, shit. I guess we do have to go back to war. Fucking Germany. We fucked those idiots up just a couple years ago and they're back at it. On September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland from the West. Then two days later, France and Britain declared war on Germany, officially beginning World War II. Over the next six years, with over 30 countries fighting each other, the massive conflict would take more lives and destroy more land and property around the globe than any previous war ever. 
Among the estimated 45 to 60 million people killed were 6 million Jewish people murdered in Nazi concentration camps as part of Hitler's final solution, an attempted genocide of the Jewish people now known as the Holocaust. And Hitler hoped that would be just the beginning. He wanted, as part of his stupid Lebensraum uh, ideology, to kill all Jewish people worldwide, according to his memoir, Mein Kampf. He wanted to kill all kinds of people worldwide, or at least subjugate them, create all that precious German uh, living space. And who was standing between the Nazi-led Axis forces and their violent quest for domination? Stephen fucking Seagal, majestic ponytail, billowing in the wind beautifully behind him. He stood atop a giant bald eagle, using only his elite martial arts training and mastery of black magic to keep from falling back down to earth, where he would, of course, not be injured, for he is the last of the Highlanders. He is both immortal and invincible. Wait, that's not right. Oh, wait, no, I just misread some of my notes. No, standing against Hitler's uh, vision were Western politicians, military thinkers, millions of brave allied soldiers, spies, and an unsung group of math nerd wizard heroes, not Steven Seagal. And I'd never looked into these dork warlocks uh, before diving into this sucks research. Had no idea these crypto code crackers were just as important to the allied war efforts to stop the Nazis as all that actual firepower that the uh, military had. I had no idea that uh, without these equation witches, the Nazis might've been able to outmaneuver and outgun the allies and theoretically, possibly win World War II. The job of these algebra eggheads was of course to decipher the impossible codes of one of the world's earliest versions of a computer, the Enigma machine. Let's get to know this bad boy. I found this very interesting. I hope I can explain it correctly. Went over this one, uh, this part of this uh, a bunch of times. Like all the best cryptography devices, the Enigma machine is simple to describe, infuriating to break. The word enigma means puzzle or secret in Greek, and this device would prove to be the ultimate puzzle of the 20th century, which means I would have been absolutely zero help to these arithmetic sorcerers. I have never been able to crack codes, never been able to crack a Rubik's Cube. Uh, I did once get frustrated enough to smash one into my bedroom floor uh, hard enough to break it in two, and another time I tried moving the stickers around uh, to make it look like I'd solved it, uh, which is not an indicator of future code-breaking greatness. Uh, a quick glance, the Enigma machine, it looks kind of like an oversized typewriter. I watched a few YouTube tutorials about it, and so cool. I'm going to leave a link to my favorite tutorial in the show notes at this point in the episode if you want to download it from the app. Uh, it's a World Science Fair channel uh, video called The Enigma Machine Explained. I would play it, but it's you need to see it. Really impressive how compact this machine is, how well-built, powerful, how advanced for the 1930s and 40s. It has 26 keys on top, one for each letter of the alphabet. Uh, above these keys, it has 26 lights, each labeled with one letter from the alphabet. And to use this battery-powered device, you push a letter button, and then one of the Enigma machine's letter lights lights up to reveal a different letter than the button you pushed. Uh, anything but that letter, a letter picked randomly, push that same letter button again, and a different letter lights up than the last letter that lit up. Push that same letter button a third time, another random letter lights up, and so on and so forth. Each push of a letter is replaced by an encrypted substitute for that letter, uh, a substitute that's continually changing. And the Nazis would use this machine to send an encrypted message to some U-boat commander or field marshal, uh, whoever, to coordinate an attack, coordinate a defense, uh, you know, set up an ambush, relay a supply line change, whatever information they didn't want to end up in the hands of the allied forces. Uh, they could use several of these devices to talk to one another on the battlefield, to coordinate, you know, whatever might need coordinating. And then they'd have to use something uh, else to actually transmit the messages with, like a, like a mobile radio. To, you know, they have to read the encoded uh, Enigma gibberish to someone else. 
And how did another German uh, decode these encrypted messages once they heard them? Well, they would have to type in the ciphertext, uh, which was what the scrambled message was called, into another identical Enigma machine, one set to the exact same rotor and lamp board settings. The lamp board consisted of 26 different plugins allowing for further encryption through that many more signal variables. And the, and the rotors each had, you know, 26 different little points. Uh, you have three rotors, right? Three sets of 26. And, and, and the circuit's moving through the lamp board and moving through all these different rotors to create all these different number possible or, you know, uh, text possibilities. And, and every day, the Nazis would change all of their Enigma settings. Every month, High Command would send out papers with that month's official rotor and lamp board's daily settings printed on them, right? It made it so hard each day, uh, you know, all of the Enigma machines are being changed. The lamp board plugins are being moved around. The rotors are being popped out and switched around, set to different settings, you know, so, so you would have a whole new set of codes to work with. And these monthly Enigma settings were rarely transmitted via radios or any other communication devices. They were personally delivered all across Europe to reduce the risk of interception. And when the receiving Enigma machine set to the exact same settings as the other Enigma machine that was transmitting the message, uh, it would then reverse the message thanks to the machine's reflector, aka reversing drum. It would be decoded into whatever the original message was actually typed in. It's fucking magical. And I know all this is a bit complex. I hope it's not too boring. I find it very interesting. Uh, before we move on, let me use a message example to illustrate how good this machine was at encrypting. Let's say we want to encrypt a word in a more rudimentary way, calling the uncoded word a plain text message using a cipher where the normal alphabet is matched to an unorganized version of the same alphabet, we might substitute H for Z. Once we decide what each and every letter turns into in our scrambled alphabet, we have the ability to create cipher text. To decrypt the ciphertext, we just reverse this process, determining through trial and error what each letter of the scrambled alphabet corresponds to in the normal correct alphabet. And when we've done that, we've cracked the code. We can now decode any message created using that particular ciphertext alphabet. If we know that Z always equals G and P always equals O, L equals S, Q equals H, we know K equals D, R equals A, W equals N, and we get the code ZPLQKRWZ, we know that the ciphertext says what real message? Gosh dang! Oh my heck! Did that ever just flip and say gosh dang? You can imagine the lines between the normal alphabet letters and the scrambled alphabet letters, kind of like a map using encryption like this. You know, Z connects with G, P connects with O, and so on and so forth. Those lines could also be wires in a rudimentary encryption machine electrically connecting each pair of letters directly. But what if we change this map? What if we could keep changing the connection map almost endlessly? This is what the Enigma machine did. This was its genius. The ability to change the mapping is important because once someone deduces that Z is the substitution for G, they'll know that's true for every Z in the ciphertext. An obvious improvement would be for all those pairings to change, and even better, if they could change each time a letter is encoded. One way to implement that possibility and the way it is done in the Enigma machine is, is to embed all that wiring in a wheel or a rotor. By turning the rotor while leaving the letter stationary, the connections between the letters continually change. How many possible paths does that give us through three rotors for any one letter? The letter G, for example. Keep in mind that each rotor can be turned to any position. That means that for the first rotor, there are 26 possible paths through it for G. But once we followed the wire through the first rotor, there are now 26 more possible paths 
through the second rotor, and then another 26 possible paths through the third one. Now the total number of paths for G to take through all three rotors is 17,576. And making it more confusing, each rotor is wired differently, and they're each given names using Roman numerals one, two, and three. To even further complicate things for anyone who might get a hold of an Enigma machine and try to decrypt in another Enigma machine ciphertext message, the rotors are allowed to be taken out and moved around before use. Instead of a nice, tidy, straight, you know, uh, situation from the uh, uh, for the lineup of like one, two, and then three, rotor two might be the left one, rotor three might be in the middle, and rotor one can be moved over to the right side. And that changes the encryption path all over again based on the way they were wired. And to add even more possibilities, up to eight rotors were made by the end of the war, each with their own wiring and Roman numerals, right? One through eight. The German army and the Air Force would use five rotor Enigma machines, and the Navy ended up using eight rotor devices. Prior to use uh, of these machines, uh, three rotors would be selected from however many rotors uh, were available to choose from. Assuming we're trying to decrypt an army message, we'd have a choice of five rotors to use for the left one, then a choice of four remaining rotors for the middle one, then a choice of three for the right one. That gives 60 possible ways to choose the three rotors being used for a message, each of them 26 combinations, and it just continues to get more complex, right? This, this continues to magnify how many different ways a message can be encoded. Let's now look at how the Enigma machines got better and better, more infuriatingly difficult to figure out over time. At its inception, the Enigma machine wasn't a single device. Uh, the Enigma brand, until the end of World War II, included many types of encrypting devices. In general, there were two families of Enigma encryption devices, the older extensive one with eight encryption rotors and a mechanism that printed messages like a typewriter. This early device weighed a lot, super expensive, and then a newer simplified model replaced it uh, with a light bulb table that we talked about that indicated the subsequent letters of the code. It was cheaper uh, you know, and weighed a lot less. The second version was created to keep the correspondence of commercial companies private. And then someone thought, oh shit, this would be fucking awesome to use in the military. And military demand suddenly surged. Uh, the first rotor encryption device sold under the name of Enigma was Enigma A, a device patented in 1918. Sold through the mail in Europe, Asia, and the US. Uh, Italy uh, was the first nation to use this device for their military. It was constructed by the Sherbius and Ritter Berlin Wannsee Company in Germany. Very heavy, hard to move around. Uh, and it wrote directly on paper which is why it was sometimes called the writing enigma. The cryptographer set the rotors in the right position, started to encrypt or decrypt. Uh, it was also possible to write without encrypting to be used as a standard but super expensive typewriter. Uh, the successors of this device were the B and H models, and then came the Enigma C. And that was the one that I designed by myself with my eyes closed, because I'm a genius like Turing. Uh, no, that's crazy doc. I uh, know the Enigma C, uh, the first of the Enigma devices to use light bulbs to indicate letters of the cryptogram instead of typed text came out in 1924. Uh, Enigma C was a lot smaller and like I said before, way more mobile than Enigma A, also a lot cheaper, cost a thousand German Deutschmarks, only an eighth of the price of the Enigma A. Uh, there were several versions of Enigma C. The basic model had 26 contacts on every rotor, used the standard international alphabet, the keys on the keyboard installed alphabetically, not in the QWERTY layout of keys on a keyboard or typewriter. Uh, Enigma C expanded into Enigma D and K, where it was possible to change the system of rotors to increase the maximum number of arrangements during encryption. All these machines were used commercially, and then the Enigma machine uh, evolved further. The Enigma 1 was created in 1927. It was the first Enigma machine to be used by the German military. 
becoming standard equipment in the German Reichswehr, the pre-Nazi military that was under the conditions of the Versailles Treaty, never supposed to exceed 100,000 troops, but Hitler secretly grew it prior to World War II to 550,000 troops. What? Our army is over five times the size of it's supposed to be? Nine! Really? It's true. Shocking. Himmler, who is in charge of the counting of the soldiers? Karl Willigit? The psychic visit guy you're so fond of? The one always talking about the soul giants and the spear of destiny? He is a fool. No wonder we accidentally have a much bigger army than we were supposed to. Send Karl back to his visit lair. No more counting for the naughty boy Karl. We are so sorry. We are to tell the guys to go back home, set down their guns and such. We Nazis, we don't want to upset anyone. That is not what we are about. We just like to march and play dress up. Don't worry about it. We don't bother anyone. You have my word. Uh, construction of this Enigma was based on the commercial Enigma D, one of the successors to Enigma C, but the Enigma 1 had a plug board installed in the front, making it even easier for military use. And this Enigma 1 would be used by Germany throughout World War II. In its first versions, the Enigma 1 was equipped with three rotors, going to be set in six different ways. In December of 1938, two additional rotors were added, you know, which resulted in the 60 possible settings of rotors I mentioned earlier, tenfold increase in encryption capabilities. Then the uh, new plug board substantially increased the total number of possible combinations again. Uh, the Enigma 1, used by both land troops and the Luftwaffe air troops. And then there was the most enig enigmatic Enigma of all, the M4. Excuse me, the, uh, the Enigma M4 was constructed during World War II for the communication of submarines in the German Navy. The Enigma M4 played an important role in the Battle of the Atlantic. It was introduced totally unexpectedly on February 2nd, 1942, which caused a great commotion among the Allied cryptologists in their headquarters of Bletchley Park, north of London. We'll learn more about that nest of number necromancers soon. The Allies couldn't break the code for a bloody nine months. And not bloody is an English bloody, bloody hell, like actual uh, bloody carnage. Uh, not until the code list was intercepted. Previous to that break, the Enigma M4 seemed impenetrable. It was so powerful, it was equipped with eight different encryption rotors. It ran on a 6.2-liter supercharged Hemi V8. It had an eight-person hot tub jutting off the back. It could bench press over 500 pounds for reps. It had a 60-inch vertical leap, and it could dunk on a 12-foot rim. Okay, only that first part's true. The part about the eight different encryption rotors. Thanks to these extra rotors, the number of possible alphabets grew to the amount that gave the German cryptologists and for some time also the English and the French the assurance that no one could break it. And in each rotor, the left-hand contact arrangement with the right-hand contacts was different, allowed for generating 26 various cryptographic alphabets depending on the position of the rotor with relation to the access. A cryptologist who did not know the rotor connection system would have to check an enormous number of possible connections, over 14, sorry, over 400 septillion possibilities, over 400 trillion trillion. Uh, absurd, absurd. I think I kept saying septillion, septillion <laughs> before I get emails, septillion. Uh, it sounds pretty cool though if I say septillion. It sounds like an even fancier number. It's a septillion. No, it's septillion. Uh, absurd, yeah, with, with settings that changed every day. The Germans were confident that outside of someone stealing their monthly codes, no one could decrypt the Enigma M4. And then Allen, Allen, I can't talk anymore after I said septillion. And then Allen, <laughs> nailed it, nailed Allen. Well, good job, Dan. And then Alan Turing and his clan of allied geek gladiators were like, hey, nice. We're about to take our slide rooms because we're not right in front of Starcraft team. Let me explain one more. And the Nazis were like, what? What did you just say? 
And they were like, well, you know, we're not there in Rosalind. Rosalind can nigga me us and we're from our stock rankings and so we're living space and we're war. But stop mumbling, you filthy nerds. And then they're like, I said, fuck you, Nazis. We're about to take our slide rulers and code slap your Enigma nuts right off the front of your sauerkraut tanks and shove them right up your living space and win the war. And they're like, oh, that's, why, that's very mean. Why did you say that? I wish you would just kept mumbling. Okay, maybe Alan Turing and the other code nerds did not say that exactly, but they probably thought it. They had an impossible task laid out before them and they impossibly made it possible. Now let's suck the rest of this crazy story in this week's Time Suck Timeline. After some awesome sponsor deals. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers if you've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when you hear that mint mobile wireless plans are 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan you're probably thinking what's the catch well there isn't one really they cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you it's pretty simple mint mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. I uh, hope you just heard some sweet deals that appealed to you. Now for some heroism and nerdery. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Six hundred BCE. Let's get to the beginning of all the code breaking stuff. Uh, it's estimated this is roughly when the first codes were devised. The ancient Spartans used a device called a skittily to send secret messages during battle. The skittily consisted of a leather strap wrapped around a wooden rod. Letters on the wooden strap only made sense when wrapped around the correctly sized rod, which the recipient would have. The rod had to have the exact right di- diameter to relay the code. You couldn't write the code on some, you know, girthy, rock-hard, 16-inch stallion rod, for example, and expect someone to break the code using some skinny, uh, limp, sad, two-inch micropene rod. You get it? Uh, Reverend Dr. Paisley gets it, too. Uh, (laughs) Come on, JK. In all seriousness, you can Google image search it if you're real curious. Uh, It's hard to properly convey exactly how this thing worked. Only verbally, uh, very simple and clever how this thing was just wrapped around this stick, just so. Uh, Around 60 BCE, Julius Caesar, I've heard of him, invents a substitution cipher that shifts characters by three places. In his code, A becomes D, B becomes E, and so on. Definitely not as sophisticated as the Enigma, not nearly so, but a good code back for uh, 60 BCE, when a good portion of the Romans' enemies were illiterate barbarians. Some of the people he fought against would have probably had a hard time deciphering a code that was just the same letters written in the same order, but upside down. What me think is this? It looked like word letter thing, maybe! But wrong shape size. Make head hurt. Hit with rock. Maybe rock hit make letter speak right. Ah! You know, that's kind of like the level they're at. A millennium and a half later, in 1553 CE, a Japanese cryptologist, uh, Giovanni Battista Balasio, invented the first cipher to use a proper encryption key and agreed upon keyword that the recipient needs to know if he or she wants to figure out how to decode the message. No one would have been able to break this type of encryption known as the... Uh, Wiesen, Wiesen air cipher until over three centuries later in 1863. It's too complicated, not important enough to our story to spend 10 minutes to explain it, but, you know, worked for over three centuries. Uh, also, uh, Giovanni Battista Blasio was Italian. 
uh, not Japanese. I just thought it'd be fun to have you think, fucking Japanese, really? That's the least Japanese sounding name I've ever heard. 1854, another Japanese uh, encryptor, Charles Wheatstone, invents the Playfair cipher, which encrypts pairs of letters instead of single ones, making a code that is much harder to crack. It would be used by the British military in World War I and by the British and Australian militaries in World War II. And also, of course, Charles Wheatstone, uh, not Japanese. Uh, he was English. Uh, gosh dang. Now we're closing in on the 20th century in the age of the enigma. Before we get back to that machine, we arrive at the birth of one of the brilliant men who would break the unbreakable code. Alan Matheson Turing is born in Maida Vale, a neighborhood in London, to Ethel Sarah Turing, daughter of Edward Waller Stoney, a railway chief engineer, and Julius Matheson Turing, a British civil servant in the Indian Civil Service. In 1918, Alan would begin attending St. Michael's Day School in Hastings, where he uh, does not do very well. He struggles academically and socially, frequent target of bullies. Uh, whatever was the 1918 equivalent of wedgies and getting stuffed into lockers, that's what life was like for Allen at school. January 1922, nine-year-old Allen sent to Hazelhurst Preparatory School in Front Sussex, 50 miles south of London, where he does much better. Has a few friends, learns to play chess. In 1926, at age 14, he tests into and is sent to the Sherborne School in Dorset. His first day of term co coincided with the 1926 general strike. This general strike lasted for nine days. The aim was to force the government to act to prevent mine owners reducing miners' wages by 13% and increasing their shifts. And the strike created transportation problems across England. And it didn't look as if Allen would be able to get to school until it ended. Uh, determined not to miss his first day of school, Turing showed an early indication of the tenacity that it would later take to crack the Enigma machine. And he cycled the 97 kilometers, about 60 miles, from his home in Southampton, just rode his bike 60 miles to school. And then his little sweaty nerd ass sat down and got to study. I love it. Not sure I'd let my 14-year-old take a 60-mile bike trip to school on his bike, but uh, love the dedication. Hail Nimrod, young code breaker. His teachers would worry at, at this school that he learned uh, leaned excuse me, too heavily uh, on mathematics and science at the expense of the classics. The headmaster would write to his parents, if he is to be solely a scientific specialist, he is wasting his time at a public school. We'll catch up more with Alan in a bit. 1917, Japanese cryptologist Edward Hebern invents an electrical uh, mechanical machine in which the encryption key is embedded in a rotating disk. It's the first example of a rotor machine. It also encodes a substitution. It also encodes a substitution table that has changed every time a new character is typed. Ed was not Japanese either. Uh, he was American. Sorry. Also, uh, just as random as my running lie, but totally true, he supposedly came up with the idea for this machine while in jail for stealing a horse. Horse thievery! Such an old-timey crime. You don't hear about a lot of horse thievery these days. 1918, German engineer Arthur Sherbius names the portable electromechanical encrypting machine he's constructed the Enigma, after the Greek word for secret. As we mentioned, it is used for commercial purposes at first and then later is adapted uh, for use by state institutions. And important to note that Arthur was not a Nazi. He had no idea that his machine would end up in the hands of Hitler. Uh, Hitler didn't even join his first political party until a year after the Enigma machine was created. Arthur died in 1929, four years before Hitler became German chancellor. Arthur actually died in a horse carriage accident. So many horses in this timeline so far. Making me think about sweet sarsaparilla. Whoa, sarsaparilla, whoa. I'll untie you in a bit, girl. Don't spit out that ball gag. Uh, if you get that, you get that. 1919, May 8th, Lieutenant Joseph Serafin uh, Stanzlicki establishes a Polish Army cipher section, the, pre the precursor to the Cipher Bureau in Poland. 
The cipher section reported to the Polish general staff. The Polish-Soviet War started in 1919, fought between the Second Polish Republic, a.k.a. interwar Poland and Russia, and it would last until 1921. And Polish puzzle solver, solvers, <laughs> what? Polish puzzle solvers? Uh, really helped Poland in the war. Some 100 Russian ciphers were broken by a sizable cadre of Polish cryptologists who included Army Lieutenant Jan uh, Kowalewski. Oh, boy. Kowal, Kowal <laughs> fuck it, these names are preposterous. Uh, <laughs> I tried so many times before. Uh, Army Lieutenant Jan Kowalewski and three world-famous professors of mathematics, Stefan Marzerkowitski, uh, Wakla Serpinski, Stanislaw Luzaniewski. No idea if I got those names correct because the English-speaking internet doesn't give a fuck about early 20th century Polish mathematicians. <laughs> not a not a uh, a bunch of uh, pronunciation guides to choose from with those names. Uh, their efforts helped preserve Poland's independence, which had only recently been regained in the wake of World War One. Poland would defeat Russia in this war. Soviet leader Lenin was pissed. He would say at the war's close, "This is great shame of life. I've less pie on face now. Had Russia been beaten by army of small monkey, riding medium-sized dog into battle, than to be defeated by the Pole people." I'm not I'm not totally sure you ever said that. Uh, he definitely never said that. Uh, the following year, February of 1920, less than two years after the end of World War I, things already start to heat up in Germany, Nazi-wise. The NSDAP, Nationalist, or National Socialist German Workers' Party, aka the Nazis, published their first program, which became known as the 25 Points. The Nazis refused to accept the terms of the Versailles Treaty, called for the re reunification of all German people. To reinforce their ideas on nationalism, they promote the racial ideology of equal rights being given to only German citizens. Hitler claims he is in favor of equality for those who have German blood. He says Jews and other, quote, aliens will lose their rights of citizenship and the immigration of non-Germans should be ended. That year, the party announces that only persons of pure Aryan descent could become party members. And if the person had a spouse, the spouse had to also be a racially pure Aryan. Party members could all, uh, also not be related either directly or indirectly to a so-called non-Aryan. Uh, and it's so ignorant in so many ways. I, obviously ignorant, but maybe more ignorant than you even understand. Uh, if, if you recall from Suck 170, uh, the Nazi search for the Holy Grail, there is no such thing as being Aryan. It's, it's a made-up race for angry idiots uh, to claim to be a part of. If the Aryan race was uh, a real race, for lengthy reasons we went over in that episode, based mostly on ancient linguistics— it would be Persian. Persians would be Aryans. And according to Hitler's racial policy, uh, no Persian Aryan would have been allowed into an Aryan-only party, which is obviously absurd. And, and on February 24th, 1920, the Nazis held a mass rally where it was announced, uh, where it announced this, this new program. The rally was attended by over 2,000 people, and the popularity of this party, of course, would increase exponentially over the following years. August 1920, in just this month alone, uh, with Poland still fighting the Soviet Union, Polish cryptologists decrypt 410 signals. Six years later, 1926, the Enigma is first used by the German Navy as the Germans secretly build up their interwar military. Late 1927, early 1928, a fascinating mistake tips off the Polish general staff to the existence of the Enigma machines. A package arrives at the Warsaw Customs Office from Germany that, according to the accompanying de uh, declaration, was supposed to contain radio equipment. The German firm's representative strenuously demanded that the package be returned to Germany even before going through customs, as it had been shipped with other equipment by mistake. His insistent demands alerted the custom officials who notified the Polish general's uh, the Polish general staff cipher section, 
which had taken a keen interest in new developments in radio technology. And since it happened to be a Saturday afternoon, the section's experts had ample time to look into this matter. They carefully opened the box, found that it did not, in fact, contain radio equipment, but instead a cipher machine. They examined the machine, then put it back into the box, and this entirely legal acquisition of a single commercial model Enigma set off Polish interest in the Enigma machine and its codes, an interest that would lead into World War II and eventually help defeat the Nazis. And I love this whole process began with an, uh, with an address fuck up. They just put the package in, in the wrong uh, address section when they sent out some other stuff. Uh, 1928, uh, the Enigma machine is used for the first time by German land troops. July uh, 15th, 1928, the first Enigma coded messages are broadcast by German military radio stations and Polish monitoring stations begin to intercept them almost immediately. And Polish cryptologists in the cipher section uh, are instructed to try to read them. And their initial efforts are fruitless. That doesn't, let them, that doesn't stop them from continuing to study this new puzzling machine. Lieutenant Maximilian Shelsky, guessing uh, that's how you say his name. Some of the letters in it don't even look real. Uh, managed, uh, who managed the German section of the cipher bureau kept trying to crack this machine. Uh, Shelsky and his colleagues came to the conclusion that the current methods used to break codes uh, were no longer effective. The game had changed. He decided to focus on teaching code breaking as a subset of mathematics. He knew talent and luck wouldn't be enough to deal with the enigma. Uh, prior to the enigma, code breakers were linguist, uh, linguists, not number nerds. Linguists decrypted codes looking for letter patterns. They studied sentence structure, word order. But the new technology of the Enigma obliterated the need for linguistic knowledge. You couldn't use your knowledge about word order or sentence structure if there were bajillions of possibilities of what a single letter could be. You needed some type of early computer to crunch all these numbers. In January of 1929, as a direct response to new Enigma codes, the Polish University of Poznan introduces a secret new math-heavy cryptography course. And before I talk about it, does anyone else think about cryptids? Does anyone else keep hearing cryptids when they hear the word cryptography? When I was working on my notes earlier, I started to picture somebody signing up for this course thinking it was a cryptozoological course. <laughs> right? Just the wrong dude just walking in. Um, yeah, uh, Professor uh, David Childress here. Very confused by all the math talk. Uh, will you be telling us soon how this all relates to finding Bigfoot or perhaps uh, werewolves? or to the giant stone balls often associated with the ancient aliens. Sorry to interrupt, but it would just be easier to focus on these numbers and use all this code jibber-jabber if you could explain how it will lead to, say, capturing a unicorn or the Belarusian sky squid or even a bugbear. Uh, yes, uh, yes, I, yes, I can't hold all my questions until after class. Uh, wait in the hallway? Yes, that's fine. Uh, the University of Poznan uh, was chosen as the best place for the new course because it taught a lot of high-achieving students, and many of those students had been educated in German-speaking schools, making them equally fluent and German and Polish. And early on, only a handful of mathematics students were selected to take this new course. Besides their crypto, 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 cryptographic abilities, uh, they were also evaluated for their meticulousness, patience, and orderliness. The class was organized by Shelsky, our friend from the cipher section, and a man named Guido Langer. A little bit about Langer, who would uh, become one of the main figures in all of these uh, code breakers. Guido Langer was born in Tokyo, Japan, where he became a famous cryptologist in a nation known for cryptologists. Uh, come on, JK, JK. <laughs> I picked J uh, Japan totally at random, by the way. Uh, Langer was born in Upper Hungary, present-day Slovakia, and spent his childhood in Silesia. He was a student of the Turetian, Turetian, excuse me, Military Academy, 
And during World War I, as an officer of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he was taken into captivity by the Russians. And he would escape twice from Russian captivity. He's a tough son of a bitch, determined. On January 15th, 1929, Major Langer, having made it back to Poland, after a tour of duty as a chief of staff of the 1st Legion Infantry Division, he became chief of the Radio Intelligence Office, one of the offices that would later merge to become the Cypher Bureau. Chelsky and Langer then decided to collaborate with the mathematics professor at the University of Poznan, whose first name starts with a Z and then is followed by way too many constants and not nearly enough vowels, and a last name of Krigowski. Krigowski would invite 26 students from the mathematics department to audition for participation in the new code-breaking course. The top eight of these would be invited to work in the cipher section. These cipher bureau students would meet twice a week in a nearby military facility. Among the participants were Marion Rajewski, uh, Jerzy Rozyski, and Henrik Zygalski. Uh, all three would play big roles in the Polish understanding of the German codes. Professor Krigowski, through, uh, throughout much of these students' training, never told them they were working towards cracking the Enigma machine. Uh, they, they thought they were just studying, you know, a real course, and, uh, and for their tests, he would give them actual Enigma codes to solve, right? How fucked up? That's crazy. Like, and you thought your math test was, was hard. He's giving these students, uh, you know, equations to solve for their tests to get their grade that literally no one had been able to solve told these poor, stressed-out students at the Cypher Bureau um, had already broken these same codes, which they hadn't. Many in the Cypher Bureau actually considered the codes these students were given completely unbreakable, impossible to break. And a couple hours after giving his students the first test, some of these students, including Rajewski, Zagalski, and Rozyski, actually decoded these messages. Uh, they were not as encrypted as they would be later during World War II when the Enigma machine uh, had become much more advanced, but they still were very difficult to crack. Uh, I highly doubt that made-up cryptozoology student David Childress was of much help in breaking these codes. Um, yeah, uh, Professor, David Childress here again. I don't want to come across as needlessly negative, and I hate to continually second-guess your teaching methods, but I am very disappointed in the lack of illustrations I was hoping, uh, hoping would accompany these assignments. Uh, I feel I would fare far better on cracking these codes if I were able to study, uh, say, depictions of Iranian manticores, or maybe merfolk, or perhaps the nameless thing of Berkeley Square. Uh, well, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, yes, uh, happy to wait outside. Uh, David Childress is a real dude, by the way. A real dude who really studies cryptids, really talks that way, and really fills my heart with joy when I hear him speak. Uh, back to Poland. As these decoding courses progressed, the ciphers became increasingly more difficult. Unsuccessful students started dropping out. I'll blame them, uh, along with others who decided this was all too much work. At the end of this course in the summer of 1919, or I'm sorry, summer of <laughs> 1929, uh, several participants received offers to work with the Poznan branch of the cipher section. Uh, Jerzy Rozyski and Henrik Zagalski accept and start working. They're still not told that what they're working on is the Enigma code. Uh, Marion Rajewski also starts working in the cipher section uh, the following summer, 1930. In the summer of 1931, the Cypher Bureau is officially formed by merging the Radio Intelligence Office and the Polish Cryptography Office with Langer as chief and Chelsky as deputy chief. Uh, incredibly, fake math student, but real person uh, who would have not lived back then, David Childress, uh, also gets fake hired. Um, yeah, uh, Chief Langer, uh, David Childress here again. Uh, while you guys crunch some code numbers, and do you care if I work on some doodles of the Surrey Puma? Uh, I really feel like I'm good at drawing pumas. Uh, y yes, I can went outside for a bit. 
having way too much fun with this fucking weird crypto dude. Uh, September of 1932, Chelsky moves the Poznan Cipher office to Warsaw. By September of 1932, events in Germany make it clear that international trouble is on the horizon. On July uh, 31st, um, the NAAC, NAACP, Jesus Christ, it couldn't be more different. The NSDAP, Hitler's party, had become known as the Nazis, had won 230 of 608 seats in German parliament. And then on August 13th, Hitler uh, publicly declared that he would not accept any ministry in the government other than the chancellorship. And then just over three weeks later, on August 30th, Hitler's deputy, uh, Hermann Goering, is elected president of the German parliament. And then in September, a spy who works in the Berlin uh, or in Berlin sells secrets about the Enigma machine to the French. The French share their secrets with the British, and at this time, both the British and French governments think the information is useless and pass it along to the Poles. In October of 1932, Chelsky puts Marian Rajewski in charge of the division of breaking the Enigma codes. In December of 1932, in less than three months, Rajewski has broken the unbreakable code. He's recreated and presents as a mathematical equation a machine he's never even seen before. Uh, how did he break this code that all other experts could not? Well, Rajewski immediately focused on the mathematical properties of the Enigma code without wasting time uh, using traditional cryptographic methods. First, he identifies that the fact that the code is cyclical from those rotor machines. Using that, he develops a mathematical model of the rotors, which he uh, turns into a reconstruction of the Enigma, which finally, by plugging in the keys to the code, reveals the first message. And he did this without even seeing this. Ah, this uh, it's crazy. Rajewski's discovery would be the beginning of a very long process of breaking the Enigma machine. Yes, he broke the code, but German engineers constantly introducing Enigma improvements and changes. So they'd have to break more and more codes for more and more Enigma machines. It's a race against time to see who can move faster, the engineers or the code breakers. 1933, a Polish company builds a dozen copies of the Enigma machine. The Cypher Bureau focuses on keeping up with German engineers. The rest of the world is unfortunately unaware of the Polish team's mission. Uh, the British and French still think that the German code is unbreakable. The rest of the world has no idea the Enigma machine even exists. Meanwhile, the Nazis continue to ascend to power in Germany. Fearing that the German Communist Party's new gains in parliament uh, mean that Germany is on the verge of a Bolshevik revolution, a group of prominent industrialists send a petition to President Paul von Hindenburg asking for Hitler to become chancellor. Hindenburg reluctantly agrees to their request, and at the age of 43, Hitler becomes the new chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933. The German chancellor is now the head of the actual German government, tasked with running the country. Uh, the president is head of the state, similar to uh, Queen Elizabeth II in the UK. Uh, the job is, you know, uh, largely ceremonial. At the time, though, think of Hitler as being second in command, and then he would very quickly become first in command. Just two months later, March 23rd, 1933, the German parliament passes the Enabling Act of 1933, which gives the cabinet the right to enact laws without the consent of parliament. In effect, this gives Hitler dictatorial uh, powers. Uh, yes, he's like, he's a dictator. I'm, now I'm blank. Now I feel like that word doesn't sound right in my head. Uh, dictator, dictatorial, uh, let's move on. Uh, he subsequently abolished uh, labor unions and other political parties, imprisoned his political opponents. January 1934, Hitler signs a non-aggression pact with Poland. And when we talked about this move was uh, unpopular with many Germans who supported uh, Hitler, but resented the fact that Poland received the former German provinces of West Prussia, Poznan, Upper Silesia uh, under the Treaty of Versailles. But Hitler doesn't really intend to stay out of Poland. Uh, and this isn't actually, the, there's so many fucking pacts and treaties and this suck. This is not the moment. There was another non-aggression pact we talked about earlier that we'll talk about later. Uh, but yeah, Hitler does not intend to stay out of Poland. Not, not from the very beginning. He's neutralizing the possibility of a French 
Polish military alliance before Germany can rearm. Right? There's all these alliances spread out. It's all a big chess game. What? You, you, you think I was trying to trick my Polish friends? Nine. That makes Hitler heart so sad. I want things to work. If there's two things you should know about me, it's that I'm a man of my word and always have everyone's best interest in heart. I, I put everyone else's interest in front of myself. JK, I line dirty piece of Schweinsteiger. Uh, France and Britain know by now that Hitler is full of shit, that he's building an army, that he's breaking agreements laid out in the Versailles Treaty, but they essentially ignore these violations. They're not eager to re-enter the fight, right? Throughout the 1930s, a British policy of appeasement is developed by Pri uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, in which Hitler would be allowed to expand German territory somewhat. Though it now seems like a weak and potentially disastrous policy, it was thought of as pragmatic and popular at the time. Very much a policy of, ah, fuck, it sucks for you guys, but but not our problem. Oh, sorry. And like I said much earlier, to be fair to Britain and to France, they had just lost so many men's lives less than 20 years earlier. They were desperate to avoid the slaughter of another world war. They were also overstretched uh, policing their colonial empires and they couldn't afford rearmament. Uh, they hoped that Hitler would stop after taking some small parcels of land from neighboring countries and the injustice Germany had suffered under the Versailles Treaty would then be satisfied. But of course, Hitler not going to be satisfied. Uh, he was out for world domination. 1935, Poland develops a device that aids in the uh, decryption process called the cyclometer. Oh man, Poland uh, on fire intellectually in this suck. Very impressive and surprising. So surreal. Feels like I'm reading a story about fish or bugs who learn how to talk or build computers or something, right? Feels like some weird sci-fi horror fantasy B-movie script. And then you find out it's true. Like what? The monsters not only can speak and wear clothes, but they're good at math and heroic and noble and way smarter than me? I'm dumber? Then every Polish character in this story, ah, how humbling. I love you, Polish bastards. Uh, the cyclometer was invented by none other than 12th level number wizard, Marian Radziewski, right? This guy we keep talking about to calculate the uh, cyclic permutations of cryptograms in Enigma codes. This device consisted of two sets of Enigma rotors and it worked very well, but even with this device, creating a complete catalog of characteristics was a difficult and time-consuming task. For each of the 17,576 positions in which the machine could be set, six possible sequences of rotor settings had to be analyzed, resulting in 105,456 possibilities to document. Way too many to quickly break messages based on the settings that would change every 24 hours. 1936. In Britain, 24-year-old Alan Turing's device, uh, devises what many now think is the first example of the modern computer. It's called the Universal Turing Machine. Turing called it an A-machine or automatic machine. And its purpose is deceptively simple, as he would say, to compute anything that could be computed. And important to point out, he devised this machine on paper, uh, not actually built. But the concept was solid. And if it had been built like he had drawn it out, it would have worked much like he expected it to. Uh, and that is some Da Vinci shit. Didn't have the means to make his invention, but had the mind to build the proper blueprint. Truly ahead of his time. Makes me wonder when I read about things like that, like who is ahead of their time now? Some people are in all likelihood. People have ideas. We just don't have the technological ability to implement yet. Visionaries who will not be fully recognized for the power of their intellect until long after they're dead. Uh, between 1936 and 1938, Allen goes to Princeton in America to study under Alonzo Church, a distinguished mathematician and, uh, and logic guy. Logician, I guess. So many fucking words <laughs> and this sucked. It all looked good when I was reading them. But then you go to speak and you're like, I've never said that word in my life. Uh, this is where he starts to study cryptology. 
1938, he received his PhD. His dissertation was called Systems of Logic Based on Ordinals and introduced original logic and relative computing. I'm going to pretend like I know what that stuff is. Uh, he's only a few years away from joining the British effort to break the Enigma machine. Meanwhile, in 1936, Hitler is still busy remilitarizing the Rhineland. Hitler annexes Austria. Britain and France are like, brah, not cool, dick move, brah. But still following their policy of appeasement, they don't actually do anything. Actually, they do something, just not the something any 21st uh, century person would hope they did. On September 29th and 30th, 1938, Germany, Italy, Great Britain, and France signed the Munich Agreement, by which Czechoslovakia must surrender its border regions and defenses to Nazi Germany. Man, eat shit, Czechoslovakia. Sorry, you got to take one for the team. It's a team you're not on, but, you know, still, you got to take it. Uh, the, the leaders of Britain, France, and Italy agreed to the German annexation of, the, of a Czech area called the uh, Sudetenland in exchange for a pledge of peace from Hitler. Still trying to appease him, right? Just giving somebody else's land to, to Hitler. I, I want to ever try and take anyone else's land. This is all I want. I promise. Pinky swear. Definitely not Poland. I want to play nice. I'm a big teddy bear. Look at my cute little mustache. It's a good guy stash. It's a nice guy stash. Uh, by the fall of 1938, even having built a replica of an Enigma machine, the Polish codebreakers still have a huge codebreaking obstacle to overcome. They can decode a new Enigma machine message, but only when they know the message sending Enigma machine settings. So in reality, in a military situation, they can't decode the messages. Uh, Henrik Zagalski comes up with an idea of using perforated sheets of paper known as Zagalski sheets to determine the setting. The race is still on. The, the Zagalski sheets do work, but they have to be made by hand which is extremely time-consuming, still takes far too long to decode a message to be useful in a military setting. Around the fall of 1938, Germany changes up the Enigma again. They had two new rotors. This fucks up the Polish codebreaker's understanding of the machine significantly. They now have to create many more Zagalski uh, sheets to crack the code. This method, method again, for any, any military purpose, is preposterously obsolete. November of uh, 1938, uh, Marian Rajewski responds to the new challenge by constructing a bomb. He decided to bomb Germany. No Germany, no problem. Why hadn't anyone thought of this before? No, it's not that kind of bomb. This one is uh, generally spelled with an E at the end. This bomb was another electromechanical device. It consisted of six interlocking blocks of rotors that searched for correct Enigma settings constantly. Uh, the setting of the rotors could be correct uh, if a light with the same letter lit in each column. At this point, the engine would stop and the operator recorded the position of the rotors and then restarted the device. Within about two hours, this bomb could break an Enigma code. Remarkable, like an ancient computer. Uh, this machine would be the prototype for most of the Allied, not ancient, but you know, old computer. Uh, and this machine will be the prototype for most of the Allied machines uh, you know, used to decrypt codes in the future as the Enigma machines continue to evolve. It would be Enigma machine versus uh, bombs. Enigma machines evolve, so do these bombs. Hitler declares that an outbreak of war would mean the end of Europe, Europe yeah, European jury on January 30th, 1939. Not good. Seems like he is maybe not going to honor his earlier I'm done causing trouble promise after taking Czechoslovakia or part of it. That same month in Paris, crypt cryptologists from the United Kingdom, France, and the Polish Cipher Bureau meet to discuss the Enigma machine. Guido Langer and Maximilian Shelsky go to France with the instructions to reveal their successes at code breaking only if France and UK are at similar stages of success. And they were not. In fact, the British and the French were almost unaware of the existence still of the Enigma machine. They'd heard of it. They knew what it did, but they knew nothing about how it actually worked. So as, as instructed, the Polish officers kept silent, uh, which led to a British government secretary, uh, Dilwyn Knox, essentially calling the Polish officers foolish, 
foolish and ignorant. Uh, despite the insults, uh, as the war became more imminent, Langer and Chelsky appealed to their higher-ups in the Polish army to reveal their findings to the Allies, and eventually their higher-ups consented. So on July 25th, 1939, a second meeting between the Allies and the Polish codebreakers takes place. This time, fun for us, David Childress gets invited. So it went really, really well. Um, yeah, uh, Allied operatives, David Childress here again. Uh, uh, it took a lot of time to put together what I feel is a really helpful presentation uh, for today's meeting. If you can stay with me, I, I think this can really take Hitler down very quickly. If we want to stop the Nazis, we need to align ourselves with the Bat Beast of Kent and the Domston Blobs. Uh, both are presumed to be extraterrestrial in nature, uh, quite formidable foes. I've drawn some depictions based on eyewitness uh, encounters. I'd like to walk you through some locations where I think we have our best odds of making contact. Also, we're going to need some new uh, uh, empaths with strong psychokinetic powers to communicate with the— uh, What? Uh, I'm sorry? Uh, wait outside and, until the meeting's over? Okay, okay. I uh, don't see how that will help, but uh, whatever I can do to stop Hitler— I'm back now. The real meeting without David took place in a secret radio station near Warsaw. Went about as well as the first one. The French initially not impressed with Poland's code-breaking methods. The British showed ostentatious indifference, according to one uh, source. Nerd drama. We got some real British and French nerd brats at this meeting. Uh, Rajewski and his colleagues know what's at stake. They push on anyway. They systematically explain everything they've done so far, including the machine reconstruction and the creation of their new decryption devices. In the end, to prove their competence further, they break a newly received Enigma message in front of their uh, you know, British and French counterparts. And when they did that, the British and the French were like, oh, okay, all right, okay, this is fucking legit. Uh, on August 23rd, 1939, Hitler negotiates the non, sorry, the aggressive non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. This is the one I mentioned earlier. Shocking many in the world who had believed Hitler's strongly anti-communist stance would prevent German-Soviet cooperation. Uh, the German-Soviet pact stated that the two countries wouldn't take military action against one another for 10 years and also secretly stated that Poland was to be partitioned between the two powers. It enabled Germany to attack Poland without fear of Soviet intervention. The stage was now set for, the Germany, for Germany's invasion of Poland. Uh, bad break for the Cypher Bureau there. On August 16, 1939, in France, British General Stuart Menzies receives a Polish-built Enigma machine. The machine is immediately sent to Britain with diplomatic protection. God bless those Polish heroes. They knew Hitler was coming for them. You know, they, they, they had to have known that their code-breaking wouldn't stop that, so they sent one of their machines quickly to help the rest of Europe. Cooperation between Poland, France, and Britain now full steam ahead. Uh, the British set up their own decryption efforts under the code name ULTRA a code name that signified that any knowledge of the British understanding of the Enigma machine was more secret than top secret. It was top, top secret. It was ultra secret. The British government's government code and cipher school headquartered in Bletchley Park in Milton Keynes, about 50 miles north of London, gets to cracking the codes. British cryptographers began their work to decipher the newest, most complicated versions of the Enigma machine. And early on, the British cryptographers catch a break. They realized that out of lack of discipline, many German messages uh, were sent every day with the exact same encryption, which gave the codebreakers a constant flow of messages for them to compare and work with. Had the Germans changed the rotors on their Enigma machines more frequently, the British might not have had enough information to work with to break the code. On September 1st, 1939, Hitler invades Poland. 
German units with more than 2,000 tanks over 1,000 planes break through massively outnumbered Polish defenses along the border and advance on Warsaw. Just three days later, on September 3rd, France and Britain declare war on Germany, officially kicking off World War II. Following Germany's lead, the Soviet Union invades Poland from the east on September 17, 1939. The next day, many of the Polish codebreakers flee to Paris through Romania, unable to take their research and equipment with them. They have to rely on memory alone to bring knowledge about the Enigma machine to the Allies. David Childress is devastated. He has to leave behind several years worth of cryptid illustrations. Um, yeah, uh, fellow codebreaker, David Childress here, very sad. Very concerned that the Nazis will now form an alliance uh, with so many mystical creatures based on my detailed notes and illustrations. Th this is positively cataclysmic. They're definitely going to find some octosquatches, uh, which will help immensely uh, with their navy. Due to my research, they may locate Owlman, and they will almost certainly make contact with the Pressman Lake Monster and the Ghost Ape of Marwood. Cannot stress enough how devastating it is. Uh, yes, I'll be out in the hall. Uh, back again to real history. Uh, on September 27th, despite fighting tenaciously and inflicting serious casualties on the Germans, the Polish army is defeated. Warsaw surrenders to the Nazis. On October 6th, the last military holdouts in Poland also surrender to the Nazis. Germany directly annexes former Polish territories along Germany's eastern border. The remainder of German-occupied Poland organized under a civilian governor general, the Nazi party lawyer, Hans Frank. In October of 1939, having arrived in France, the group of escaped Polish codebreakers suffers added insult to injury as the French insist on leading the codebreaking efforts, even though the Polish were the most advanced. Uh, according to reports, French officers continually demean and relegated the Polish codebreakers to inferior, oftentimes menial tasks. Fucking French assholes! Only I can mock the Poles! I hope those Polish nerds shove some hot baguettes up your arrogant asses. As 1939 winds down to a close, things continue to stall as the British are having trouble using the information given to them by the Polish codebreakers. The French refuse to send the codebreakers to Britain to help. All uh, while many of the Polish codebreakers' families and friends are probably dying in Polish ghettos and concentration camps. Can you imagine not immediately being like, fuck off and just going off to drink yourself stupid, but instead sitting down, bucking up and doing more math like those Polish codebreakers did. Damn. Uh, to make things even worse, during the six months following the invasion of Poland, the lack of action on the part of Germany and the allies in the West leads to the media reporting on a phony war, fake news. Uh, see, however, the British and Germans are fighting a very real war. Their navies have faced off as lethal German U-boats struck at, or strike at merchant ships bound for Britain, sinking more than 100 vessels in the first four months of World War II. Hitler wants to starve out the allies sink as many ships as possible, you know, ships bringing them food, other important supplies. The British struggling to make use of the Poles' info and receiving very little help from the French. They need a hero, and they have one. They just don't know it yet. Alan Turing. We introduced Alan, of course, at the beginning of this timeline. He was born in 1912. Let's re-meet him now as an adult. He was not the hero the Brits expected. He was eccentric. He was very eccentric. His appearance was scruffy. He spoke with a stammer. Turing's mother would have to write him to remind him to buy at least one suit a year. Otherwise, he would just dress in rags. He preferred to hold up his pants with string. He wore a pajama shirt under his coat, which was not common at the time or any time. Later, when he was brought in to break codes for Britain, he reportedly attached his tea mug to a radiator using a combination lock so no one else could use it or take it. He would often ride his bicycle to work while wearing a government-issued gas mask, which no one else did. He stood out. 
He was the subject of many conversations behind his back. And this weird eccentric genius would later be credited by Winston Churchill as having made the single biggest contribution to Allied victory in the war against Nazi Germany. Maybe. It's been reported that, that this happened. Uh, Rumored that he privately said that. He never publicly said it. Uh, sadly, Turing would get no such public recognition during his lifetime. While he was alive, he would heroically save Britain, and then Britain would tragically destroy him just a few years later. More on that soon. On September 4th, 1939, Alan Turing is asked to join the government codes and cipher school. He agrees. He arrives at Bletchley Park the day Britain declares war on Germany. Soon, he will head the Hut 8 team, which carried out crypto analysis of all German naval signals. Analysis of German naval signals was really important as it protected Allied ships from what were uh, what were called the wolf packs of German U-boats. When they solved a puzzle, they saved lives. When they failed, lives were lost. It was the most high-stakes game of battleship ever. Turing works with Gordon Welchman, a British-American mathematician, to develop the bomb. Shortly after he arrives, a device that is essentially an improvement on the bomb that the Polish codebreakers had already once developed years earlier. If you've seen the movie The Imitation Game, the 2014 movie about Alan Turing's World War II code-breaking contributions, uh, his bomb machine was not nicknamed Christopher. Uh, in reality, it was nicknamed Victory. Uh, but the Christopher machine from that movie is what I'm talking about here. Big, beautiful machine. Cost 100,000 pounds to build. Uh, accounting for inflation in today's dollars, that's the equivalent of 6,579,000 pounds, which is over $8.6 million. And they would build 211 of these machines throughout the war for a total cost uh, equivalent to over $1.8 billion today. They went big. They went all in on these machines and Alan, Alan Turing designed them. And they went big because they would be proven to work. Each machine was seven foot wide, six foot, six inches tall, two feet deep, weighed a ton. Again, to go back to the imitation game, it wasn't as dramatic in that movie. It wasn't like a long period of not working. And then finally at the, you know, the last minute, they, they got this machine to work. They would get this machine to work and they would have to devise more and more machines to keep uh, the code breaking going. Each bomb had 108 places where drums could be mounted. The drums were in three groups of 12 triplets and each triplet corresponded to an Enigma rotor. And this big ass machine could crank through code possibilities far faster, light years faster than any human mind or any other machine. From January 14th to the 17th, 1940, British cryptologists at Bletchley Park decipher some of the Luftwaffe's secret transmissions with the help of Polish experts. This breakthrough meant that the Ultra program now could decrypt most German military codes. It's a major turning point in the intelligence realm of World War II. But now they had to be smart about how to use it. They knew that if they jumped on every piece of information they could decipher, the Germans would realize that the code had been broken and they would reset the entire code overnight, leaving the Allies back at square one. They had to come up with cover stories and could only act when they anticipated a German attack. Sometimes the cover story involved a lucky scouting plane that came across a surface submarine. Sometimes a civilian fishing vessel uh, was the key to a successful British raid on a supply convoy to, say, North Africa. The Germans would continue changing the code and the Allies would keep breaking it. February 1940, a British codebreaker named John uh, Hurville figures something out. Once again, he figures out that, the, that human laziness plays a role in breaking codes. He figures out that the lazy code clerks might give away the Enigma machine's rotor settings in their first messages of the day. If there were several lazy clerks, the first messages rotor settings would not be random, but would have a clustering around a specific rotor. And this insight became known as the Hurville trip. Tip, Jesus Christ. Uh, Turing reportedly gets a huge nerd boner, 
may or may not have made love with the victory machine. February 12th, 1940, the British Royal Navy minesweeper HMS Gleaner locates a sunken German submarine U-33 laying mines in the Firth of Clyde, Scotland. Of the 17 survivors, one has three Enigma rotors in his pockets. The rotors are immediately sent to Alan Turing for further study. Nice little break. Germany simultaneously invades Norway and occupies Denmark in April of 1940, keeping the Bletchley Park Bunch working to break Enigma codes during the Norwegian campaign. In May of 1940, Germany changes the use of the Enigma before the attacks on Benelou in France. The codebreakers can't decode the new transmissions. Allied cryptologists are temporarily blindsided. German forces sweep through Belgium and the Netherlands in what becomes known as a Blitzkrieg or Lightning War on May 10th, 1940. May 13th, more success for Germany. Hitler's troops cross the Meuse River, breaking through an elaborate chain of fortifications constructed after World War I, considered an impenetrable defensive barrier. Uh, May 22nd, the cryptologists at Bletchley Park once again break the Luftwaffe Enigma Code. In late May, French forces mount an increasingly doomed resistance as Germany closes in. On June 10th, 1940, with France on the verge of collapse, Italy's fascist dictator, Benito Mussolini, forms an alliance with Hitler, known as the Pact of Steel. Hitler, uh, Italy, excuse me, joins the fighting by declaring war against France and Britain. Four days later, June 14th, 1940, German forces enter Paris. France subsequently divides into two zones, one under German military occupation and the other under a puppet French government. With France occupied, Hitler turns his attention to Britain. Just across the English Channel from France, Hitler needs to neutralize Britain before he can consolidate his efforts to invade the Soviet Union without interference. June of 1940, also still in June of 1940, the Polish crypto team is evacuated to the south of France and then moved to northern Africa. They reportedly try multiple times to ditch David Childress, but just uh, are unable to lose him. Uh, Africa, uh, wait up, guys. Uh, Africa has a rich and, wait up, guys, vast history of crypto sightings. Uh, I really think it would be worth our while to uh, take a small detour and try and locate the man-eating tree of Nubia. According to my sort, guys, wait up. According to my sources, we may also encounter the Namibian flying snake in route, both huge allies. Guys, hold on for our fight against the not. Guys, wait! June 18th, 1940, Winston Churchill, the new British prime minister, delivers his famous finest hour speech to the House of Commons. He assures the public that he has no intention of ever giving in to Hitler. With the fight for France over, he knows now that the fight for Britain is just around the corner. The Luftwaffe, he says, will attack Britain and attack them hard. But he says that the RAF, commanded by Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, will hold its own. The speech is a massive success, boosting the morale and patriotism of the British public, military, and parliament. July 10th, just as Churchill predicted, the Luftwaffe attacks Britain, performing reconnaissance missions and targeting coastal defenses, ports, and radar stations. Their efforts do little damage to the Royal Air Force, but the Battle of Britain has begun. Through mid-August, the Luftwaffe attacks Britain's airfields, air fighter production sites, and targets RAF supermarines, Spitfires, and Hawker Hurricanes in the air. At the same time, on the eve of the Battle of Britain, Bletchley Park receives the first copy of the Turing bomb. Despite being outnumbered, the RAF retaliates by bombing Berlin. This forces Hitler to reconsider his initial strategy. His idea had been to wear down the RAF in anticipation of a land invasion. But with Germany failing to cripple Britain's air power, Hitler backpedals. A land invasion was now ruled out as unrealistic. Instead, Hitler chooses to use sheer fucking terror as a weapon to wear Britain down. The Blitz was about to begin. 
On September 2nd, with the help of the newly installed Victory Bomb, the Codebreakers succeed in breaking the Brown Cipher, providing crucial and timely information about Luftwaffe targets. Thanks to the efforts of the Codebreakers, British intelligence now has an idea of the coming strike on September 7th. But the Blitz is more massive than they anticipate. On September 7th, 300 German bombers raid London, the first of 57 consecutive nights of aerial attacks. The bombing continues until May of 1941. By the end of that first day, German planes had dropped 337 tons of bombs on London alone. Enough uh, that the civilian population was, uh, excuse me, even though the civilian population was not the primary target that day, the poorest of the London slum areas are hit directly by bombs and fall victim to fires that break out and spread. We touched on this just last week in the acid bath murderer suck. John Hay was killing in London while all of this is also going on. 448 civilians killed just in the afternoon and evening of September 7th uh, by the bombs, uh, not by the acid bath murder. That would be a very busy day for a serial killer. Come on, everyone in the acid tub. Go, go, go. I got to get some sleep. A uh, little past 8 p.m., British military units alerted with the code name Cromwell, meaning the German invasion has begun. On September 15th, the Luftwaffe begins two massive raids on London, eager to force the British to the negotiating table. But despite, but despite the success of some of their bombing runs, they can't defeat the RAF. They can't break British morale. They can't c gain control of British airspace. In October, the French now decide to transfer the Polish cryptologist to an unoccupied part of France. No word on David Childress's contributions from this time. On October 31st, Halloween, Hitler calls off his planned invasion of Britain. The Battle of Britain is over. Both sides suffered enormous loss of life and aircraft. Despite taking a lot of damage, uh, Britain weakened the Luftwaffe and prevented Germany from achieving air superiority. This was Hitler's first major defeat of World War II. He tried, and, he tried and failed to gain control of the English Channel, as he'd hoped, and he couldn't execute Operation Sea Lion to invade the British Isles. Britain remained a holdout, and later in 1944, Americans would establish a base of operations in England to invade Normandy on D-Day. Back to Turing, 1941, amid cracking codes uh, like crazy, Turing proposes to his coworker and fellow cryptographer, Joan Clark. She accepts. Shortly after, he has second thoughts and admits to Joan that he is gay. She keeps uh, his uh, sexual preference a secret as homosexuality is a crime in Britain in 1941. And how insane is that? It was an actual crime to admit that you were gay in 1941. And crazier still, it is still illegal to be gay right now today in 73 different countries around the world. Fucking ignorance. Worse than any disease humanity currently faces. Uh, also in 1941, January, Hitler effectively comes to control Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, while they have their own governments, the choice is essentially between cooperating with the Nazis or being invaded. January 10th, 1941, Winston Churchill receives confirmation from decrypted German messages that Germany plans to invade Greece via Romania. He promptly begins working on plans for a British force in Greece. In the spring of 1941, the British codebreakers are once again busy cracking the Enigma codes. This time, they're working on messages from German troops fighting in North Africa. May 5th, 1941, the British Royal Navy's 18th Cruiser Squadron, consisting of the HMS Edinburgh, Manchester, and Birmingham, with five destroyers, set sail from Scotland, heading north to capture the German weather ship Minchin. In particular, Admiral Lancelot Holland, most British name ever, Admiral Lancelot intends to take the mentioned set of coding tables that would make the Enigma code able to be decoded immediately for the first time. The, uh, oh, actually, I kept saying Minchin. <laughs> it's uh, Minkun. Uh, the Minkun is spotted, something like that, is spotted and taken. 
Uh, although the German, or spot on taken on May 7th, although the German captain had thrown the Enigma machine and the coding tables for May 1941 over the side as the English ships approached, the settings for June 1941 were found in his desk. Boom! The coding tables quickly taken back to England. Turing takes them into the bathroom, locks the door. The rest of his crew hears heavy breathing, some sort of repetitive rhythmic slapping type sound, a uh, very fleshy, comes out five minutes later pretty sweaty. Not sure what to make of all that. Gosh dang. May 9th. Another boat sinking reveals valuable information. A German submarine U-110 captured the British HMS Bulldog. Captured by the British HMS Bulldog. The capture yields an Enigma machine and a code book. Nice little break. May 10th, the British Royal Navy Captain J.R.S. Haynes carrying the German Navy's June 1941 cipher setting information arrives at Bletchley Park. Winston Churchill decides to share information from the Enigma messages with the Soviets on July 19th but he makes the call not to tell the Soviets where the British got the info from. Instead, the Soviets are told the information came from spies in Berlin. Meanwhile, Hitler is laid up trying to figure out how to invade the Soviet Union, delayed by internal disagreements and the cold Russian winter. And I love all this like spy stuff. And then they have allies that are like allies kind of, but just in this war. And they're going to give him some information, but not all the information. Just what a crazy game this war was. By late, by late 1941, with Britain facing Germany and Europe, the U.S. is the only nation capable of combating Japanese aggression. By that time, Japan had expanded its ongoing war with China and seized European colonial possessions in the Far East. Then, on December 7th, 1941, a swarm of 360 Japanese aircraft attacked the major U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, taking the Americans completely by surprise, claiming the lives of more than 2,300 troops. The attack on Pearl Harbor unifies American public opinion on the side of entering World War II. The following day, Congress makes it official. Congress declares war on Japan with only one dissenting vote on December 8th. Germany and the other Axis powers then promptly declare war on the U.S. Same day, Mavis Beatty, one of the leading codebreakers of Bletchley Park, successfully breaks a German message on a link between Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and Berlin. This allows the codebreakers to deconstruct another updated Enigma machine. January 9th, 1942, a sad day for the Allied codebreakers. Uh, Jersey... Rosiski and two other members of the Polish codebreaking team die in a sea catastrophe in the Mediterranean. They were returning to the Kadic Center, a clandestine intelligence center near Uzis, France, that were that they were working out of from a stint at its branch office on the outskirts of Algiers. The passenger ship they were on sank under unclear circumstances near the Balearic Islands. Unfortunately, cryptozoological expert David Childress was also on board and was able to swim to shore and survive. Um, yeah, David Childress here again. Uh, I just want to say that I did not swim to the southern shore of Spain entirely on my own. Uh, I was aided by the seldom-seen rhinoceros dolphin, a double-dorsal-finned, exceptionally intelligent sea mammal, uh, first spotted in the late 1800s. If we could form an alliance, uh, uh sure. Uh, yeah, no, not, no, I can wait outside. Uh, February 1942, the German submarine fleet launches a four-rotor model of the Enigma. Uh, the British, once again, lose the ability to break its codes, leading directly to increased Allied losses in the Battle of the Atlantic. In July of 1942, Turing develops a complex code-breaking technique he named Turingery, <laughs> suited for breaking the torrent of messages suddenly emanating from a new and much more sophisticated German cipher machine. Uh, the British code named the new machine Tuni 
Good. Easier to say. Uh, the Tuni Teleprinter Communications Network, a harbinger of today's mobile phone networks, spanned Europe and North Africa, connecting Hitler and the Army High Command to, in Berlin to the frontline generals. The knowledge of what Hitler was up to from Europe to North Africa was invaluable. Uh, with the U.S. successfully battling Japan in the Pacific, it was time to let the U.S. in on what the uh, European codebreakers were up to on October 2nd, 1942. That's when the British Bletchley Park team and the U.S. Navy's codebreaking department, OP-20G, agreed to a relationship of full collaboration. November 1942, Germany occupies North Africa and southern France. The Polish codebreaking center abruptly is liquidated. Its staff awaits the possibility of evacuation from occupied territory. December 1942, Turing travels to the U.S. to advise U.S. military intelligence in the use of the bomb machines and to share his knowledge of Enigma. In return, he's allowed to inspect a speech encryption system being set up to allow coded conversations between Churchill and Roosevelt. So many codes, so much encryption, so many secrets important to the war. December 13th, 1942, Enigma codebooks captured by HMS Petard from the sinking German submarine U-559 arrive at Bletchley Park. Within an hour, interception of German submarine signals cracked by the new codebooks allows the British Admiralty to instantly pinpoint the location of 15 different U-boats. They'd officially cracked the new four-rotor Enigma. It took nine months. It's all so much more complex than how the story was laid out in that imitation game movie. Great movie, but it didn't make for a clean narrative to show how it wasn't just one big code-breaking victory for Turing, uh, and then he and his team had it all figured out for the rest of the war. It was a back-and-forth code-breaking and encrypting chess match that lasted for years. From February to March 1943, the Polish team was once again at the shittiest end of a shitty stick. The now Major Chelsky plus Lieutenant Colonel Langer, Lieutenant Anthony Polith, and civilian codebreakers Edward Fokusinski and Kazmierz Gaka are betrayed by their French guide and captured by the Germans as they attempt to cross from German-occupied France into Spain. A part of the team succeeds in crossing the border, but Shelsky and Langer were sent to an SS concentration camp where, despite being interrogated, i.e. tortured, they do not reveal the secrets of the Enigma decryption. Uh, they managed to convince their interrogators that while the Poles had some success with solving the Enigma early on, changes introduced by the Germans just before the start of the war had prevented further decryption. Uh, who knows how many lives uh, that convincing lie alone saved. After their interrogation, Langer and Chelsky are imprisoned at a camp near Eisenberg Castle in the present-day Czech Republic. Cryptozoological expert David Childress also captured, sent to a concentration camp, where he was soon released for not shutting the fuck up about cryptids and for being the most annoying POW the Nazis had literally ever taken. Uh, yeah, Nazis, uh, David Childress, here again. Uh, would love to discuss further uh, uh, the elusive Bavarian cryptid, the uh, Wolpendinger. Nine! 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 July 1943. Mussolini's Italian government falls, but fighting between the Allies and Germans continues on Italian soil. July 31st, 1943, with the approaching harshness of Russian winter, along with dwindling food and medical supplies, the German attempts to take Russia fail as the Battle of Stalingrad comes to an end. The last of Germany's Eastern Front soldiers surrender. The battle featured some of the most brutal fighting of the war. Hitler now losing World War II for sure. And the codebreakers have helped immensely, giving Allied forces important intel on the location of Nazi military and their upcoming maneuvers. But the war is not over. Long ways from over. In mid-1943, Allied naval forces begin an aggressive counterattack against Japan, involving a series of amphibious assaults on key Japanese-held islands in the Pacific. 
This island hopping strategy proved to be successful and allied forces moved closer to their ultimate goal of invading mainland Japan. After fleeing occupied France and being imprisoned in Spain, Polish codebreakers Marian Rajewski and Henryk Zagalski make their way through Portugal and Gibraltar, end up in the United Kingdom. Despite their undeniable successes, they are not allowed to work with the British codebreaking team that their successes helped found. The British are, maybe rightfully so, too worried about spies to allow anyone else uh, to, uh, you know, too far into their codebreaking inner circle. And it seems like a, a lot of the English and French are just fucking pretentious about the uh, Polish and, and just won't let them cooperate uh, with them or work with them. Sadly, David Childress uh, will work his way onto Turing's team. Uh, until the end of the war, the rest of the Polish codebreakers tackle less significant German codes, mostly handwritten Waffen-SS codes. August 1943, code-cracking mechanical bombs designed in the U.S. enter the war effort. Uh, the Polish bombs led to the British bombs, and now those led to these American bombs. And again, not bombs that are being dropped, but, uh, you know, machines. And the new American bombs, much faster than British bombs, and thanks to them, most of the Enigma codes, including the four-rotor model, are broken quickly and efficiently. Uh, the American bombs built at the U.S. Naval Computing Machine Laboratory— the NCML was a highly secret design and manufacturing site for code-breaking machinery located in Building 26 of the National Cash Register Company in Dayton, Ohio, operated by the U.S. Navy. So people thought just more cash registers were being made there, and they were being made there when it wasn't the war. Nope, uh, code-breaking machinery. And that company is still around, still making cash registers. They're now based in Atlanta and known as the NCR Corporation. If you work there, if you're listening, did you know that your company helped Alan Turing and other others uh, crack Nazi war codes? Pretty cool. Uh, June 6, 1944, the Allies begin a massive invasion of Europe, landing 156,000 British, Canadian, and American soldiers on the beaches of Normandy. In France, the Allies were victorious, and June 6 is remembered as D-Day. In response, Hitler pours all his remaining strength uh, into Western Europe, guaranteeing the defeat of his army in the East. The summer of 1944, the code-breaking continues Despite great efforts by the Allies, the Germans were aware that Enigma codes were being broken now, and they continue to introduce new devices that complicate decryption. Just as quickly as the Germans can roll these out, the Allies are breaking them as the Axis and Allies battle in France. December 16th, 1944, in what was called the Greatest American Battle of the War by Winston Churchill, the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium would be Hitler's last major offensive in World War II on the Western Front. On January 25th, the Allies win the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, and all, according to the U.S. Department of Defense, one million plus allied troops, including some 500,000 Americans, fought in the battle with approximately 19,000 soldiers killed in action, 47,500 wounded, and 23,000 or so missing. Such a fucking massive battle. Uh, about 100,000 Germans killed, wounded, or captured. Just two days later, on January 27th, the Soviet army enters Auschwitz. Birkow, uh, uh, Monowitz uh, liberates around 7,000 prisoners, most of whom are ill and dying. Soviet forces would go on to liberate the Grossrosen camp on February 13th. Against the wishes of Bojangles, uh, I'd like to publicly thank the communists for setting these Nazi prisoners free. Uh, the Ordruf, uh, Ord Ordruf camp was a subcamp of the uh, Buchenwald concentration camp. And on April 14th, 1945, it was the first Nazi camp liberated by U.S. troops. On April 11th, U.S. forces liberate the Dora uh, Mittelbau camp and the uh, Buchenwald camp. Uh, on April 30th, one day after U.S. troops liberate Dachau, uh, Hitler kills himself in his Berlin bunker. Fuck yeah. Every once in a while, suicide, pretty sweet. 
uh, would have preferred if he would have rotted in prison for a while, you know, been humiliated a little longer, unso- unceremoniously executed, but, but glad he died uh, knowing he'd lost the war. Uh, with Soviet forces occupying much of Germany, the Nazis formally surrender on May 8th, 1945, right? They've, they've done it. The code breakers have helped win the war. Uh, Japan would not surrender for several months, but they will surrender soon. Uh, Polish code-breaking leaders Langer and Chelsky liberated from the concentration camp by American troops in May of 1945. Uh, They would head to London. On June 28, 1945, the British chiefs of staff drive to Bletchley Park, where Sir Alan Brooke addresses 400 staff, thanking and congratulating them for their extraordinary contribution to the Allied war effort. Alan Turing is awarded the OBE for his wartime services. The OBE is an Order of the British Empire Award. It's the second highest ranking Order of the British Empire Award. Stands for Officer of the Order of the British Empire, as opposed to Commander for a CBE and Member for an MBE. Uh, Japan agrees to surrender on August 15th, 1945, after the U.S. drops atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th. September 2nd, Japan formally surrenders, uh, ending World War II. In October of 1945, war hero Turing joins the British National Physical Laboratory, where he now works on developing an electronic digital stored program computing machine. November of 1946, discharge from the Polish Army, code-breaking all-star, original bomb maker Marian Rajewski returns to Poland to be with his wife and family. And I should note, uh, if I didn't say it before, like all these guys after the war, you know, uh, privately, they get to celebrate, but they, don't, they still don't get to fucking tell anybody what they actually did, how much they helped win the war. What a, what a weird thing. You know, so happy, uh, you know, so proud of, of what they'd accomplished, but really don't get to share it with anybody. On his return, this uh, Rajewski is urged by his old Ponzan University professor, uh, Kregowski, to perform to become a professor of mathematics at uh, Poznan University, where he would have been fast-tracked because of his personal, uh, because of personnel shortages. My God, so many fucking scrabble words in this one. Uh, however, he's still recovering from rheumatism, which he had contracted in a Spanish prison. Then soon after his return to Poland in the summer of 1947, his 11-year-old son dies of polio. After his son's death, Rajewski did not want to part even briefly with his wife and daughter, so they live in uh, Bidgoch with his in-laws. Uh, Rajewski took a position in Bidgoch or Bidgoshk. <laughs> I swear to the guys, if you guys think like, oh, these words are pretty easy, why is B-Y-D-G-O-S-Z-Z-C-Z? What the fuck? Uh, he works there as a director of the sales department as a cable man- at a cable manufacturing company uh, called Polish Cable. Thank God. Thank you, Polish Cable, for having a very fucking easy name. Uh, Fellow Polish codebreaker, Henrik Zygalski, remains in the UK, but things are not easy for him either. UK doesn't recognize Zygalski's Polish university diploma. These bastards. They say that to teach mathematics in British schools, this fucking war hero has to go back to school all over again. It's ridiculous. What a dick move on England's part. So he does. He goes back to school. So stupid. Math doesn't change from nation to nation. He just, he's like, he aces his courses because he already knows his shit. Uh, but then he works until his retirement as a lecturer in a mathematical statistics uh, department of, a, of the University of Surrey. Uh, he was also prevented by the Official Secrets Act from speaking of his achievements in cryptology, as all these guys were. 1947, Turing returns to Cambridge for a sabbatical year. In 1948, Turing joins Max Newman's Computing Machine Laboratory at the Victoria University of Manchester. 1949, Turing becomes deputy director of the computing laboratory at Manchester University, working on software for one of the earliest stored program computers, the Manchester Mark I. Turing also in Manchester explores artificial intelligence and writes a paper titled 
Computing Machinery and Intelligence, which proposes an experiment designed to evaluate a machine's intelligence. And that test, of course, is the Turing test that we talked about earlier. In the following years, he'd be elected fellow of the Royal Society, give a talk about artificial intelligence on BBC Radio, and design a program that would simulate a chess game. And then things would get very sad for Turing. January of 1952, Turing meets a man called Arnold Murray, who invites him over to his house. Murray visits Turing House on a number of occasions, staying the night. They, uh, they slap dicks together for a bit, just for funsies, uh, even though it's illegal. Uh, imagine if I actually thought that's how gay male sex worked. If I thought it was just two guys with boners standing face to face and then like literally just slapping their dicks back and forth together. Just a sword fight. Uh, sorry. Uh, Murray later helps an accomplice break into Turing's house. Turing reports the crime, admits having a sexual relationship with Murray. And then because homosexual acts still illegal in the UK, both men charged with gross indecency. Then shit gets even more ignorant and absurd. Turing's conviction means his security clearance is now removed, revoked. Uh, he's barred from cryptographic consultancy for the British government going forward. The world's greatest codebreaker banned, kicked off the team, all because he had homosexual sex. So fucking stupid. And guess who was hired to take his place? David fucking Childress. Um, yeah, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, uh, David Childress here. Very excited to step in, uh, help with whatever code things need fixing. Would it be possible to start by looking into your report that the Dragon of Mortifort has teamed up with the Loch Ness Monster to fight the Lantern Men of Wick and Finn? Uh, what's that? Uh, yes, no, I, I can definitely wait outside for a moment. Uh, sadly, Turing's punishment was not just getting kicked off the team and shamed. This war hero, also given the choice of either two years in prison or to be chemically castrated. Castrated. I don't know why he pronounced it that way. Turing is given the, uh, uh, he chooses chemical castration. Uh, he's chemically castrated with estrogen hormone injections. Uh, holy shit. This guy, national fucking hero, helped save, by most estimates, at least 14 million lives. What the fuck? Let him put his dick in any consenting adult who wants it. Let him wave it around in the middle of the street. Let, let him put a little tuxedo on it. Slap it on the table at formal dinners. Let him mushroom stamp Winston Churchill's fucking forehead. Meat sacks. We're such an absurd and illogical species sometimes. Uh, Turing, yeah, he takes these estrogen hormones. The side effects are terrible. Uh, he experiences impotence, enlarged breast tissue, and based on the chemical cocktail, which was more than estrogen that he was injected with, he probably also experienced mood swings, depression, loss of muscle mass, and was at risk for a whole bunch more uh, diseases as, uh, as, as well, including blood clots and high cholesterol. And this humiliating treatment then leads to him committing suicide. Definitely seems to. Uh, June 8th, 1952, Turing's dead body found in his home in Wimslow, Cheshire. He's only 41 years old. The postmortem finds that the cause of death is poisoning, which seems to match up with a cyanide-laced half-eaten apple found beside him. Coroner's report is that Turing has killed himself while the balance of his mind is disturbed. Yeah, it's fucking disturbed. Of course it's disturbed by all these fucking hormones he's pumping into his body ridiculously. Uh, just a dozen years later, 1966, the annual Turing Award is established. It'll be given each year now to a person for technical contributions to the computing community. Uh, generally viewed as uh, being as important as the Nobel Prize. Edwin Catmull, Pat Hanoran, two Americans just won it last year, 2019, for fundamental contributions to 3D computer graphics and the revolutionary impact of these techniques on computer-generated imagery in filmmaking and other applications. Uh, 2007, a, uh, a sculpture of Alan Turing is unveiled at Bletchley Park, where he spent all those years cracking Enigma codes. Same year, the University of Manchester renames the complex housing uh, the School of Mathematics and the Center for Astrophysics as the Alan Turing Building. 
2009, the Polish Codebreakers also get some recognition, also too late. Uh, in 2009, the Polish Post issued a series of four commemorative stamps, one of which pictured Rajuszki and fellow Polish crypto heroes, Jerzy Rozyski and uh, Henryk Zagalski. Uh, in response to a petition signed by thousands of people, the Prime Minister of Britain, Gordon Brown, issues a public apology in which he describes the treatment of Alan Turing as appalling in September of 2009. In the speech, Brown says, we're sorry. You deserve so much better. Allen and many thousands of other gay men who were convicted as he was under homophobic laws were treated terribly. Uh, yeah. Uh, 2013, Queen Elizabeth II grants Turing a royal pardon 59 years after a housekeeper found his body at his home. They sure took their fucking sweet ass time with that. Uh, earlier this year, in June of 2020, uh, cryptozoologist David Childress has given the Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Association of Cryptozoology at a Ramada Inn conference room just outside of Peoria, Illinois. Um, yeah, uh, hello, everyone. David Childress here. Uh, very excited and honored to receive this recognition. Also, cannot wait to present a new series of illustrations uh, I've created based on my recent research into the bear dogs of Alaska and Canada. Um, what's that? Uh, step outside and, and wait until the time took timeline is over. Uh, yeah, I guess that's uh, sure. That's uh, that's fine. I can I can do that. Good job, soldier. You made it back barely. Whew! All right, covered a lot today. World War One, lead up to World War Two, all that before just even getting into the timeline. Uh, World War II ended six years and one day after Germany's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. That invasion would be the catalyst that would pull Britain and France out of appeasement and into conflict, uh, into the conflict starting the 20th century's second global conflict. By the time World War II ended, September 2nd, 1945, World War II had claimed somewhere between 60 and 80 million lives. And for a while, it looked like Nazi Germany was unstoppable. Their blitzkrieg strategy swept across the Netherlands, Belgium, and France, as well as Hungary, Romania, and Yugoslavia. To someone living in 1942, it wasn't out of the question to think that Hitler might actually rule the entire world. The Allies, however, turned the tide of the conflict due in great part to the brilliant nerds and cryptographers, not cryptozoologists, uh, who cracked the math codes of the Enigma and invented the first computers. The outstanding Polish mathematicians whose contribution to the victory of the Allies has only recently been recognized began all the way back in 1929 with a secret mathematics class where the students didn't even realize they were working towards saving, uh, you know, a war, people from a from a, a Fuhrer who hadn't even started the war yet. Uh, the significance of Polish mathematicians' theoretical input into cracking Enigma codes was most warmly subbed up, summed up by their British colleague, Professor John Irving Good, who worked at Bletchley Park during the war. Years later, he referred to one of Rajewski's formulas devised in his pioneering attempt at breaking the Enigma code as, quote, the formula that won the Second World War. Another brilliant and also ill-treated World War II savior was Alan Turing, a British mathematician and computer science scientist whose work was often uh, decades ahead of its time. The work of Bletchley Park and Turing's role in cracking the Enigma code was kept secret until the 1970s, the full story not actually told until the 1990s. Uh, 1952, Alan Turing, who had been a war hero, effectively abandoned by his own government, inhumanely punished for admitting to engaging in homosexual acts. Homosexuality wouldn't, be, be, wouldn't begin to be decriminalized in Britain until the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967, which legalized homosexual acts on the condition that they were consensual and private and between two men who had attained the age of 21. 
Uh, despite dying at the young age of 41, Turing accomplished so much. In a new version of the battle, he fought against the Germans and their Enigma machine in a sense continues to be fought today. Your private data, likely saved in the device you're using to listen or watch this podcast, is encrypted. Cryptographers continually are developing and refining solutions to the challenge of protecting your data. In the early 1970s, IBM first designed a block cipher to, pr to protect its customers' data. In 1973, the U.S. developed a national standard called the Data Encryption Standard, or DES, which remained in use until it was cracked in 1997 by hackers. In 2000, the Advanced Encryption Standard replaced the DES, and today AES is available royalty-free worldwide and approved for use in classified U.S. government information. Right now, computer codes are trying to be broken by hackers, some of them are being broken by hackers. Hackers, uh, not always scammers trying to access and steal your personal info. Sometimes hackers, soldiers working for some government, trying to break into the private data of other governments to win some war of information you may not know is even being fought right now. And in this sense, the very first hackers were those super smart Poles and then Turing and his amazing team of British and then American and nerd, uh, excuse me, and then American and French uh, nerd heroes. I hope you like this story. Sorry if my mush mouth was uh, crazier than normal today. A lot of, lot of heady information to break down. It always looks so good on paper, and then I, and then I have to speak. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. Hope you did. Let's head to today's top five takeaways and talk about it just a little bit more. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Polish codebreakers were the first to intercept encrypted German military signals and decode them. They're not monsters. Who guessed? Who would have guessed that? They're really smart. Uh, please don't tell my wife about anything you learned in today's episode. 1929, 10 years before British and French intelligence services really had any more than just a shady idea of what the Enigma machine was, Polish mathematicians were already getting shit done. Number two, the Enigma machine wasn't a single machine. It was instead the umbrella under which dozens of machines, both commercial and military, were produced. And these machines became more and more sophisticated as German engineers added rotors and other functions to make codes harder and harder to decrypt. Number three, in 1936, Turing devised the first example of the modern computer, the Turing machine, a machine that could compute anything that could, that could be computed. This intellectual concept of his would eventually lead to the creation of modern computers and devices we all use to listen to podcasts, uh, write one-star Yelp reviews, and drunkenly order things off of Amazon with. Number four, no Man, no single man had a greater part in winning World War II for the Allies than cryptozoologist David Childress. Uh, kidding. I meant to say Alan Turing. Well, Rajewski also. I, uh, ah, but I, but I went with Turing. Uh, one of the greatest mathematicians and cryptographers who ever lived was forced to choose between either going to prison or being chemically castrated for the crime of homosexual acts. The literal war hero was abandoned by the government he'd helped save, uh, who denied him his security clearance and then fucked with his hormone levels. The government would apologize in 2019, and then Turin would be pardoned in 2013. Too bad he didn't live to hear that apology or receive that pardon. Number five, something new. There is another movie other than the imitation game about World War II and the Enigma machine. And if you care about historical accuracy, you probably shouldn't watch it. It's called U571, released in 2000 about the hunt for and attempt to steal an Enigma machine from a German U-boat uh, that was so inaccurate, it was denounced publicly by UK's parliament as an affront to the sailors who had fought in World War II. That's a shitty day for all those involved in this movie, like John Bon Jovi, uh, that's who it stars, seriously. Also starred Matthew McConaughey, Bill Paxton, Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Uh, then Prime Minister Tony Blair condemned this movie as an insult to the Royal Navy. 
Here's an excerpt from a Guardian article from 2009 about the film's inaccuracies. The director, Jonathan Mosto, who directed Terminator 3 and Surrogates with Bruce Willis and Hancock with Will Smith, actually has the audacity to end on a title card dedicating his film to the memory of the real sailors who captured Enigma machines. Yes, that same memory he has just desecrated. This is the most tasteless gesture the filmmakers could have made. In the same article, their response to, to oh, why am I still reading the British? In the same article, their responses to uh, Tony Blair's sentiments, sentiments was a far more entertaining response would have been for Britain to fund a big budget revenge epic in which a small platoon of foppish yet plucky Brits swans over to Vietnam in 1968, defeats the Viet Cong, and wins the war. Moreover, it would be nearly as accurate as this. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe just, uh, maybe just watch the, the imitation game. Time suck. Top five takeaways. World War II's Enigma machine has been sucked. So fun. Hope it wasn't too confusing. A lot of information to digest. Hope you enjoyed it. I, I love the research on this one. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Happy birthday! November 11th, uh, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan and Kate Keith, uh, run at badmagicmerch.com, the Art Warlock and Bad Magic Baroness. Uh, thanks to all those who joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 23,000 members now making friends in there. Almost never being dicks. Almost always being incredibly inappropriate. Makes my heart happy. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. And those all-seeing eyes, uh, let me give them special shout-outs. These hardworking, fun-loving Facebook moderators, Megan Howell, Ellie Darling, Danny Ryan, Robbie Erickson, Jacob Carey, Kaylee Fitzpatrick, Jeffrey Bistran, Adam Gustafson, uh, Kathleen Saller, or Saller, I apologize, and Shelly, oh boy, none of, none of us know. We, we talked to you online, but uh, Anensen. A-A-N-E-N-S-O-N. Not as bad as a Polish name, but I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Shelly, Shelly Anison. <laughs> Shelly Butholson. I'm kidding, Shelly. We love you. Uh, thank you all also just uh, uh, who, who participate in this group for, for making Facebook fun. It's such a joy for so many listeners. We get so many emails and messages about the Cult of Curious Facebook group. Uh, it has been, especially this year, it's been a bright, bright spot, bright place to go in a dark year for many. And you, uh, moderators, add so much fun to so many lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thanks to all the wonderful weirdos having fun on Discord as well. And congrats to Hanny Bay. I, what, what is happening? Sometimes when it's all these, I notice with my mouth, when I'm doing different pronunciations in different languages, or trying to at least, failing, then then on a regular old English word, my, my brain's like, no, do it the Polish way. Uh, congrats to Hannah Bailey. That's an easy thing to say most of the time uh, for winning Round four of our Time Suck trivia game on the Time Suck app, 6,128 points. Uh, also, shout out to Corbin Gallagher uh, for just missing the win with 6,113 points. Enjoy the trophy, the free merch, and the certificate. Hannah, very impressive. All right, so what are we sucking next week? We were going to suck Ben Rhodes, the truck stop killer, winner uh, of a Space Lizard vote count. But due to the script keeper being out sick this week, Waiting on his COVID test results. Looks like he has it. Uh, we're wishing the script keeper to, to get well soon. Uh, we are swapping the truck stop killer for another true crime topic, the bloody benders. I'm just going to go ahead and say that I'm going to do a lot better job with pronunciations on the bloody benders. Uh, we've been working ahead and we've been stocked up on non-voted topics. Uh, yay being proactive. So uh, we'll suck Ben in two weeks. He's still going to get sucked. Going to suck the bloody benders now. They're a German family of four that settled a claim in southeastern Kansas in Labette County in 1871. 
John Bender Sr., his wife, Kate, their two children named John and Kate, uh, operated an inn and sold supplies to travelers or so locals thought. For a little while, locals began scouring the area after reports of people who had gone missing in their community began to surface. Once the Bender's property had been searched, the townspeople discovered that the family had gruesomely murdered at least 11 people and buried the bodies throughout the land. The search also revealed a single-room timber cabin that had been divided into two by a curtain or into by a curtain. Uh, there was a trap door that led to a stone cellar below, and the floor was covered in pools of blood. Uh, this is a crazy story. It's an old-timey, Wild West-style deep dive into the most murderous American family of the 1870s. Yeah, yeah, bloody y'all! And now it is updates time. Updates? Get your time, sucker updates. All right, let's start off with uh, some hollow earth hilarity. Coming in from Top Shelf Sack, Sean Lawler. who writes in with the subject line of greetings from Middle Earth. <laughs> and then he writes, hey, Suckmaster. Hopefully Bojangles will have mercy for the long email, but I'm not sorry. I've been catching up on episodes thanks to some COVID bullshit. Oh man, I fucking hear you. <laughs> we have another person sick with COVID right now. Uh, just listen to Suck 213, Hollow Earth Theory. At the end of the episode, you asked if anyone had ever met someone who actually believed this theory. Uh, I can one-up that with someone who is quote unquote, actually been there. Uh, while I was in high school and college, I worked in a small bookstore in the local mall, which was frequented by a variety of local wackadoodles, one of whom called himself Dr. Beard. Not sure what his doctorate was in, possibly unicorns. Uh, if you sound like a David Childers uh, type person here, um, for your mental image, picture if Gandalf had a weird love child with Hagrid from Harry Potter, wizard staff included. Oh my God. Got a fucking wizard staff. Uh, Dr. Beard came in fairly regularly and would tell anyone who would listen about his trips to the center of the earth. <laughs> awesome. Unfortunately or fortunately for me, the store was almost always empty. Uh, so I was his captive audience most of the time. He apparently made contact with the mole people <laughs> and various other residents of Middle Earth. Uh, no hobbits as far as I know. Apparently, uh, what's funny about Hobbit, Hobbits is coming up late in these updates randomly. Just put that together right now. Uh, apparently, there are also dinosaurs down there as well as magical crystals. Lindsay might be trying to contact him soon. I'd love to put Lindsay in touch with Dr. Beard. Uh, I really wish I could tell you any of his stories, but they were so nonsensical that no one who wasn't equally wackadoodle would be able to decipher and remember them. Anyway, Dr. Beard got to be well-known enough that he ended up in several publications that featured local oddities. If anyone is interested, look up Weird New Jersey. I have been on that site. I use that uh, site a lot way back for the Jersey Devil. Suck. Uh, I'd like to finish by thanking you and the whole team for your podcast. I actually came to Time Suck from Scared to Death, which I found looking for a new podcast right as you were starting it and gave it a shot since I've been a fan of your comedy for a long time. Uh, both are great, have been a huge help throughout 2020. Oh, thank you. I'm a supervisor for several group homes that provide crisis housing for people with various mental illnesses and COVID has caused a huge demand for services and increased stress on our resources. Being able to decompress on my drive home by listening to stories about ghosts, aliens, demons, cults, serial killers, countless lunatics. Your comedy has been one of the things helping me get through. Yeah, check out Is We Dumb, too. That's a good, great escapist uh, podcast with me and Joe. Uh, as someone who has struggled with depression for a long time, you've been a huge part in helping me keep an even keel with the crazy world lately. Keep it up. I try to spread the knowledge of Nimrod to anyone I think will be interested. Hail Nimrod. Keep on sucking. Sean Lawler. Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate the nice words. Glad we can help. Uh, I wish I had video to watch of Dr. Beard talking to you about his trips inside uh, Hollow Earth. So entertaining, some of these wackadoodles. And, and also, thank you for what you do. So important. Uh, sorry you're stretched thin right now. I uh, hope you take a lot of pride in the help that you are giving people. As you know better than I, 2020 has been a motherfucker when it comes to people's mental health. 
just the constant change, the fucking lunacy that happens in a variety of ways, never knowing when, you know, things are going to return to some state of pre-COVID normalcy. Uh, hope that pesky virus fizzles soon and dies. Die, virus, die. Uh, but thank you again, Sean. Uh, now for some fun imagery inspired by last week's suck. Sent in by Silly Sucker Megan. Uh, she didn't sign off with her name, so I'm going to leave her last name out of it. And she writes, hey, Dan, I'm currently listening to this week's episode. I got to your fantasy of spanking one of those holy rollers asses. I had to stop and share my thoughts. Maybe it's because I grew up in a strict religious household. No desire to be a serial killer yet. But my mind immediately flipped that situation. All I could think was in this situation where you're spanking this guy over your knee. He turns around and says, yeah, daddy, punish me harder. <laughs> then he pulls out a bridle and whip and yells, giddy up, sarsaparilla. I don't know. Maybe this podcast has turned me into a freak. Or maybe I was a freak all along. But I'd pay to see that. Sincerely, a faithful customer of Mr. Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium. I like where your head's at, Megan. I like it a lot. Giddy up, sarsaparilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a funny thought. Uh, now, now I have that scene uh, that was in your head and my head. And probably it's in a lot of other people's heads right now. So thank you, I think. Now we have a very interesting MLM update coming in from Concerned Sucker Faith out of Virginia. Faith writes, greetings, Master Sucker. Hail Nimrod, glory be to Triple M. Respect to the Suck Queen and family as well. Just listen to the uh, Nexium Cult episode. I came to Time Suck through my father and brother who are both space lizards and have been listening for some time. So if you could say a quick hello to Chris and Brendan, I know they would love that. Hello, Chris and Brendan. Hail to space lizards. Thank you for indoctrinating your daughter sister into this cult. Uh, I'll be happy to sacrifice. I mean, take care of uh, Faith. Gosh dang. Uh, Faith continues. I've also been slowly converting my boyfriend, Seth, to the cult. Yes, get the fuck in here, Seth. Bow down at the altar of... Praise Amway, the great god of high, conveniently priced, I don't know, fucking snack bars. Uh, And treat Faith very well, or Chris and Brendan will drag you out into the woods and kill you. Uh, Faith now says, I think we almost have him hooked. I made it clear that the podcast and I are a package deal. Nice job. I'm writing to you because there is one MLM you did not mention that I think you would find interesting. One of my friends has been involved in it. I've not been able to talk him away from it, so I've distanced myself a bit. Good. I looked into this. Uh, I don't know all the details, but here is what I've observed. My friend was a smart and talented guy who could afford college, so he was forced, oh, who could not afford college. Oh, that sucks. So he's forced to drop out. For a brief time, he went back to work, but then I noticed he was working less and less at the restaurant he had been with and posting nothing but bullshit like never let the haters keep you from success and here are my rules for success. Yeah, those are probably some red flags and other cheesy success related crap. One night when we were talking, I asked him about his plans now that he isn't in college. He tells me how excited he is, how he's found the perfect way to make money. Eek. Currency exchange. He exchanges through someone then gets others to exchange through him and so on down the ladder. Not good. Told him it sounds a little pyramid schemey and that offended him. Mm-hmm. Last I heard from him, he took a trip to California across the country from where we are for some kind of retreat with this company. He did make it back alive. I've distanced myself, as I said, so I don't know much other than that, but I thought you might find this kind of MLM interesting as it seems to be the most modern form. Anyway, I wish you and your family good health as you all heal from the virus. I hope you all build up some Colonel Howard strength antibodies so you never have to deal with that shit again. Your loyal cult member, Faith, out in Virginia. Well, thank you, Faith. Hail Nimrod to you. I would love a drop of Colonel Robert L. Howard's tiger blood. Have it running through my veins, floating around my system, just fucking punching viruses in their little virus faces. Uh, I did some research. 
And a number of websites are warning people in 2020 about what I think your friend's into, about a variety of currency exchanges or Forex, as in foreign exchange, MLMs and pyramid schemes. One is iMarkets Live. That's the most popular. They just changed their name, never a good sign, to IM Academy, probably due to lawsuits. And, and the other most popular one is Quest Markets. And as you already know, yeah, they're bad news. In all likelihood, your friend will never make any money. Uh, your friend will lose a lot of money. They sell training courses teaching people supposedly, uh, how to make lots and lots of money in the currency exchange game. And it is notoriously difficult for even the most skilled investor to consistently make money trading foreign currencies. If it was easy, this type of investing would be way more common than it is. It's not common. It's super high risk. So these companies fuck people over in two ways. They take your money like Nexium did through expensive courses that lead to just a never ending stream of more expensive courses. And they encourage you to invest lots of your money, all your money into foreign currency exchange where you can easily lose it all. So sorry about your friend. Maybe you can talk him into listening to the Nexium suck. Uh, keep on sucking faith. Now we have a UK sucker, longtime sucker, uh, Chantal Stoughton with a Nexium cult update to share with us. Kind of Chantal writes, Dan, we've emailed back and forth before. Shatner sings is Shatner sings is nothing, my dear, when you have seen this. When I first saw Leonard Nimoy sing Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> I thought I'd stepped into an alternate reality. Here we go. Uh, well, thank you, Chantal. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm messing up your name here. Uh, before I play Chantal's link, let me remind you what he's talking about now. William Shatner, a.k.a. Star Trek's Captain Kirk, one-time sp- spokesperson for the United Sciences of America Pyramid Scheme, I played this in the Nexium Suck. It's singing Elton John's Rocket Man at the 1978 Science Fiction Film Awards. And Chantal is telling us that this next, that this other Leonard Nimoy uh, song is even more surreal than this. And all this science, I don't understand. It's just a job. Five days a week. Oh my God. Okay, so that's pretty terrible. Now, here is Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Spock from Star Trek, singing whatever the fuck this is. This is so surreal. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all (laughs) admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins is only... There's a music video for that. This is insane. This link is also in the show notes. You might win, Chantal. That is so surreal. What a strange world we live in. Thank you and hail Nimrod. Uh, now let's close out the updates with another surreal message sent in uh, by Space Wizard, Space Wizard, Chris B. Chris writes, Dear esteemed professor of suck, I am a recent follower of the Cult of the Curious after being turned into it by a coworker. I am working my way through the entire list from the beginning and then will promptly become a fully fledged Space Lizard. Well, thank you. I just finished the Moon Landing Conspiracy episode yesterday, and it could not have been more fitting than to end on the 20th anniversary of the establishment of the International Space Station. Quick background. I work for an aerospace company that is the primary contractor to both Na- uh, or sorry, to NASA for the ISS. Anyway, yesterday on our internal network, there was an article on the anniversary, and in the comments, there was a thread full of flat earthers and ISS deniers. That's right. Employees of my company don't believe the ISS is real. We built the station and they still don't believe it's real. Anyway, this gave me a laugh and I thought you'd be interested to know that the idiots are truly among us at all levels. Keep on sucking. Sincerely, 
Crispy. P.S. I know you said if anyone goes to space, bring some time sucker stickers. Well, I am not going to space, but you'll be happy to know that there are time sucker stickers in the assembly building for a satellite, not space, but pretty close. Well, holy shit, Chris. Uh, that is crazy. About aerospace employees also being flat earthers. Guessing these flat earthers are not at the top levels of your company. Guessing they're not the engineers. Guessing. Uh, wackadoodles. You never know where they're going to show up. Uh, can we please, can we fucking please start teaching critical thinking courses in grade school and in middle school and in high school? Fucking please. Also, thank you for letting me know about those stickers. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, thanks for the messages and hail Nimrod, everyone. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for this week, Meat Sacks. More Bad Magic Productions content coming the rest of the week. New spooks with Scared to Death. Pure silliness with Is We Dumb. Please don't punish any war heroes this week for acting on the adult-to-adult consensual sexual urges they were born with. If it's what they want to do, let them suck and keep on sucking. Uh, uh, David uh, Childers here again. Uh, yeah, I just uh, was was hoping to talk a little bit ab- about uh, some various North American cryptids. I know we have a, a lot of North American uh, listeners on this podcast. There are a variety of different creatures that I highly believe to be real. Uh, the New Jersey Devil is one cryptid uh, that we we could talk about, uh, likely related to the swamp ape uh, found more in the southeastern. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was that? I just went outside just for a little bit until the next show. No, no, it's fine. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.